It's old timey crimey. I am Christy. And I am Amber. We are obviously excited to be here today. Hooray! We have a bonkers story to tell you, and also I ran into some pictures that are going to haunt me for the rest of my life, so, um, yay! <laughs> Trauma. <laughs> you say haunt. <laughs> no, no, I hope not. I hope I hope it, it haunts you. I zoom in. I'm like, <laughs> you do, don't you? <laughs> I need more detail. <laughs> so we are going to bring you a really interesting historical true crime case today. Before we get to that, of course, don't be sleeping on the Patreon. Patreon is awesome, guys. It is. We are having such a great time over there. You can find it via Patreon.com/slash/oldtimey. Rhymey, and Amber told me a story today. About misguided Mary. Misguided Mary, yes. Oh, such an interesting life, an interesting woman. Such experiences she had, and the way that she reacted to them was really unique as far as that goes. It's weird, guys. It gets weird, and then it gets sad, but we felt all the things, and friendships were made, so... Friendships were made. Yes. <laughs> so, yes, you get our weekly old tiny... Crimies, wherein one of us tells the other a story from historical true crime that they usually don't know. <laughs> and uh, you also get our monthly extra, extra bonuses where we join up with random, fun, awesome guest hosts. We pick people off the street. <laughs> yes, yes, we definitely do that. Yes, pick random people off the street, usually at like sheets, and then uh, bring them into my home because safety is very important. Yes, and they yes. should be safe from uh, anything that might hurt them. <laughs> Under my roof. And then we can talk about murder. Murder, yes. We we bring in random people off the street to talk about murder. You they, know. They like, wouldn't come home with us. No, they wouldn't. <laughs> I can just see us like hopping in your minivan and like we're driving down a sheath and being like, hey, hey there. You want to come talk about murder with us? <laughs> Let's go try it. I just want to see if it works. We really should try Curious. it. Oh my goodness. <laughs> so yes, we do that. And those episodes, we kind of center around a theme and it's really, really fun. So you should come join us over there. It's only five bucks a month. So should we talk about somebody who had more than $5 a month? <laughs> we should talk about somebody who had far more than $5 a month. He definitely would have had some resources and could have been a, a patron. <laughs> he could, he probably wouldn't have been, but yes, <laughs> no, he, probably he could have been. been. No. <laughs> so we're going to be talking today about Brooke Hart. We start in San Jose, California. Uh, let's start on November 9th, 1933. It was a day that town would definitely not forget anytime soon. Brooke Hart got into his Studebaker President Roadster, which was light green with yellow wire wheels. It was about 6 p.m., and he was leaving the department store his family owned, and he was going to take his father to the country club. His father had never learned to drive. He he had servants to do that for him. So no no As need. you do. As you do. But Brooke, you know, he wanted to be able to zoom, zoom around town and go visit the speakeasies and all that fun jazz and also listen to jazz probably. Yeah. Well, and he might have also felt obligated. So the, the Roadster was actually a gift from his parents. Yeah. Graduation gift. Yeah. If he didn't know to drive at that point, he probably was like, I guess I should probably learn. Maybe it was a hint, hint from his dad. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you know, I got all these servants driving me around and my son could be doing it for free <laughs> or the cost of a Studebaker president Roadster. <laughs> 
<laughs> so the deal was that his, Brooke's sister was also there. He was going to drop his dad off, uh, then drop his sister off at home, and then he was going to head to a public speaking class. His dad was 64, and his sister was 18. Her name was Elise. So basically, he's going to go fetch the car, pull it up to the store, and then they just come down. Because Elise actually was just loaded down with shopping bags. Your dad owns a department store. It's yes. Pretty much every day, it's like, well, time to go shopping. I know that would be me, at least. And uh, it didn't quite happen that way. Brooke got in the car. He pulled out into the road. And when he stopped, a man approached the car and opened the door. He had one hand in his pocket. He kind of pointed it at Brooke as though, you know, there were a gun in there. The man gets in the car, does in fact jab a gun into Brooke Hart's ribs, and then told Brooke to drive. They end up in the town of Milpitas. At that point, the man forced Brooke into the back seat of another car driven by another man. So now we have two men, and we have uh, Brooke, 22 years old, by the way, being forced into the back seat of their car. That car took all three men to the San Mateo Bridge. Now, it was only four years old at that point, and it crossed the San Francisco Bay. Now, it's I know it's nearly 37,000 feet long, which is exactly seven miles. Oh. To the dot. Wow. At that point, it might have been shorter because who knows, maybe there's been some erosion on the shores when they, re, you know, redid it later on because it's that was its first incarnation, I believe. Brooke has a pillowcase over his head and about a half mile out on the bridge, the car stops and the men tell him to get out. We're going to pause it right there. And now we're going to give you some insight on who Brooke Hart is who these two men are, what's happening here, and what happened next, which is some stuff. Some happened. stuff happens. <laughs> so this department store was called L. Hart and Son, and it had been started by Brooke's grandfather in 1866 as a dry goods and clothing store. This was really a local institution in San Jose. Hey, Johnstown friends, it was the Boss Cops. It was. <laughs> of San it Jose. actually started out as Cash Corner in 1866, was, <laughs> was its first name. Please don't tell me that it was Cash and Corner spelled with a K, because nope, I see, hate that. Thank see. you. Good. <laughs> I, can, I can still like them. Okay. So this family was really well known in the city. And this generation consisted of Alex and Antoinette, or Nettie, as we'll call her, Hart. They were 64 and 41, so bit of an age difference. They had married when Nettie was fresh out of finishing school, and Alex was 41. Well, she was finished. So. She was finished. She had gone to finishing school and completed it, and therefore she was finished and ready to just pluck from the tree. I'm picturing it like a farmer's market now. <laughs> yeah. I was actually picturing an actual farm where you could just walk out and just grab a woman off the yeah. tree. <laughs> All the ladies are just standing there in their dresses just waiting to be plucked. <laughs> yes. And this was a really fast relationship. My Lord. They were engaged after 10 days of courting. Wow. And married after 20. Wow. Now that is a whirlwind courtship and romance. And a lot of the times whirlwind romances can turn into tornadoes. This one didn't seem to. It really seemed to work. I think maybe... 
finishing school did a good job, I guess. It must have, yeah. Well, and marrying rich probably helps a lot. It's, it's fewer stressors for sure. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> if you argue about money, it's only because you bought eight mink coats from a rival department store. <laughs> How dare you shop at Macy's? <laughs> yes. They had four children, and Brooke was the oldest. He was born June 7th, 1911. He was named after Nettie's side of the family. Her maiden name was Brooke. So that's how he got his name. He was elected to the San Jose Chamber of Commerce at the age of one day. That's amazing. So I have this article here. Chamber of Commerce enrolls a one-day-old member. San Jose, June 10th. In the campaign for 2,000 members of the San Jose Chamber of Commerce, Leonard Brookhart, one day old, was elected a member. The boy is the son of Mrs. Alexander Hart, wife of a San Jose merchant and daughter of Mr. and Mrs. J.F. Brooks Society, leaders of Washington, D.C. So, yeah, that's starting out early in the community, really. <laughs> and this whole idea of being in the society pages, that was just the beginning his sixth birthday party was profiled in the San Jose Mercury News. Wow. With uh, both a group shot of the party goers and a portrait of Brooke. <laughs> Little six-year-old Brookie, as they called him. So from the paper... 20 little boys and girls gathered together yesterday afternoon at the home of Mr. and Mrs. A.J. Hart for one of the most attractive children's parties held in San Jose during the season. Some details for you. There was... Because it was kind of close to 4th of July, although I really feel like Independence Day creep was apparently a thing back then because this was June 10th. So, but they had red, white, and blue ice cream, red, white, and blue cake, and the children were sent home with Yankee Doodle hats and bonbon boxes. Well, these, they were kind of like America's sweethearts, though. Yeah. For this neighborhood. And they did a lot of stuff for the community. They were also some of the most prominent in the community. I have a, quote, colorful story Ooh. that I enjoyed. There is a tale that the artist who repainted the ceiling of the Cathedral Basilica of St. Joseph in the 20s modeled the cherubs after this family's children. <laughs> They're the Gerber babies of the day. They are. <laughs> well, they, they were the, the golden children. Yeah. And so there was a rumor that, yes, yeah, so the, the cathedral was painted with their faces because they're such <laughs> angels. <laughs> I love it. I love it, too. They also featured in the paper the children's Christmas parties, masquerade parties. Wow. Yes. This was a whole different life that almost anyone today cannot quite recognize. <laughs> So, in 1933, Brooke's siblings were Miriam, 21, Elise, 18, who we mentioned, and Alexander, 13. And when Brooke was kidnapped at the age of 22, he was 5'11", he was slender, had blonde hair, it had this really distinct wave to it, yeah. very much waved back from his head. I don't know if anybody could actually accomplish that today. He had blue eyes. He was athletic. He enjoyed tennis, boxing, horseback riding, swimming, camping. All the rich boy things. All the rich boy things, yes. Although, to be fair, camping, at least, is also a, a poor boy thing. <laughs> well, unless he was glamping. I kind of feel like he was glamping. He might have been glamping. It's, it's entirely possible, yeah. He might have been glamping, but he did really like to get like out into the outdoors, so he might have enjoyed the roughing it. Who knows? 
and friends, family, and acquaintances called him likable, truthful, considerate, and a natural businessman, which was his path in life, being the son of a scion of the son of a scion. (laughs) So a quote from a college friend. Now, this comes from Harry Farrell's book, Swift Justice. And a lot of my quotes are going to come from that because I found a crap ton of information in there. Just a hell of a guy, one of the best. Soft-spoken, wouldn't hurt anyone. He was very protective of his little sisters. He would act as a chaperone on their dates by just turning them into double dates. Six inches, folks. (laughs) Now, uh, I'm going to have to get out my ruler to make sure your skirt is of the appropriate length, sis. They could just do what they did in Catholic school and make you get on your knees and your skirt had to touch the ground. (laughs) Oh, my God. No, it's not awkward at all being in a skirt and getting on your knees for a person. Not at all. Not at all. There's, (laughs) There's no uncomfortable imagery there. And I bet they didn't do anything about the boys' attire. Never. So, yeah. And Brooke also was very on guard against any sort of profanity. He wouldn't even let them say darn. Yes, even darn was verboten. Wow. Now, despite that, he was known to have at least one relationship that had, as a report to J. Edgar Hoover said. Hand-holding? Was it hand-holding? Resulted in intercourse with her on at least one occasion. Oh! Good job. He got balls deep. Yes, he did. Yes, he did. I, I was thinking he was too proper to touch a lady there. I Cheers to you, too. <laughs> yes, that was an accident, but it feels like a nice time for a toast. It felt right. Brooke got some. Good. Good for him. <laughs> I'm happy he did. Yes, me too. Yeah. I feel like there was probably a little... There was definitely a double standard as far as men and women and romance were concerned, And he was just employing, you know, the wisdom of the day, which was protect the girls. (laughs) because He'll protect his sisters, but not the girls he dates. That is also true. You've got a good point. You've got a good point. But that's many men. Don't be easy like my girlfriend. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, oh. (laughs) Below the belt. (laughs) Well, and she was. Yes, she was. So, these, as we said, the roadster he was driving had been a graduation present. He had graduated from Santa Clara University with a business degree just two months before. And he got more than a car when he graduated. He became junior vice president at the department store L. Hart & Sons. This was really a store doing well, surviving the Depression. And Brooke had worked there for years and and stood to take over for his father eventually and just completely take over the business. So this wasn't a case of, you know, the CEO's son comes in. Well, it was. I mean, it was, but it wasn't like he didn't know anything. He had been hands-on from a young age. They, They did it the right way. If you're going to pass that down through the family, you need to be educating them on how the business works early. And giving them that opportunity to learn and store that information away. Yeah, it was for like later. 20, 20 years of unpaid internship. Really, yes, it was, exactly. And at this time, Brooke was going steady with Jane Hammond. Now she's not the unnamed lady spoken of earlier of the of the balls deep incident. Uh, but the balls deep incident. <laughs> yes. That will not be the subtitle. Oh, I want it to be. <laughs> I know you do. It was just 
they were going steady. They'd been going steady for a while. It was kind of a given that they were going to get engaged soon. This was seen as a long-term relationship that would end in marriage. And Farrell describes her as a small, classically beautiful brunette from Sacramento, cheerful and intelligent. I just have one little quibble with the fact that physical description comes before personality and intelligence. <laughs> just, just, it's just a I little mean, annoying. I get it, but it, it does in life. I mean, like, yeah. okay, so think of, like, dating apps now. You see their picture before you ever read anything about them. Like, are they cute? Do, could I fuck that? How many dating apps are you on again? I'm on none. <laughs> I kind of want to be. Because <laughs> I'm curious, and I really think I could screw with people in a lot of fun ways. But I, I'm not on any. But, like, I'm terrified to, of the dating apps. But that's what it is. You see their picture. That's true. That's true. And we do know... People tend to be more visual, so giving people that anchor of a visual description first. I mean, I, I can't say I'm not guilty of it. As a writer, I probably give visual descriptions more quickly than I do personality. The difference there being that the personality, I would try to do some more uh, showing rather than telling. You know, like showing she's compassionate because she's, you know, saving a kitten or something rather than saying she's a compassionate lady <laughs> yeah but but you're also a female writer so you wouldn't be like she she saved the kitten and pressed it into her big bosom <laughs> her nipples danced with joy <laughs> thank <laughs> you male writers I, male writers cracks me up i can't help it the the men writing women subreddit yes yes I love yes, it. yes it is <laughs> her nipples danced i'm like didn't know they could do that <laughs> oh god there was one the other day that compared her boobs to missiles I was like, what is happening? Why? They've honed in on their targets. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> you just hear this low-key beeping from beep, her bra. Beep, 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 I wish that was real life. Like, if I could just be walking in the mall and somebody's tits started beeping. I'd be like, is she going to get me? Do I duck and cover or not? I don't know. What's her physical description? Maybe I'll just open my mouth. Is she cheerful and intelligent? Okay. Anyhow, that was, that was a fun sidetrack. I enjoyed that. Sorry. No, 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 no. I think the beep, beep, beep might be our subtitle. Oh, torpedoes. Okay, sorry. So, yes, they're all proper. We are not. I'm sorry, yes, guys. Yes, they're, well, they're all proper except for broke on at least that one occasion. That one time at band camp. Yeah. So let's talk about these men that grabbed him and put him in their car and took him out to the bridge. So first we have Jack Holmes. He was born on March 20th, 1904. He was an only child, the son of a Danish immigrant who'd opened up a tailor shop in San Jose. His mother was Swedish. She'd settled in Iowa before moving to California. He was well-liked in high school by most. He played piano. He played football. Then there was an incident where he pissed off the biology teacher at school and then proceeded to piss him off even more by making a cartoon of the biology teacher's head atop the body of a jackass. Ah. And that got him expelled. Really? Yeah, I know. I've done far worse. I know. We talk about zero tolerance now, but holy crap, they weren't kidding around back then. I guess, damn. It must have been a really good cartoon. You Right? There's a certain friend out there, I'm not going to name her, you know who you are, but I'm just recalling her cartoons of a certain English teacher that we had in high school, and I'm just laughing, just laughing in my head. <laughs> so, now Jack Holmes liked amateur radio. He got a job in a radio shop. 
1924, he married Evelyn Fleming. And from Harry Farrell's book, she later said of him, he had all the personality in the world. He was very outgoing, easy to talk to. I was crazy about him. He was everything I'd ever dreamed of having. They moved in with her widowed mother, who was a dressmaker, and then he got a job in sales for Standard Oil. And in 1926, he joined the Masons, following in his father's footsteps. So, Mr. Mason here. He did have one nearly violent encounter. A car salesman came to try to repossess Holmes's car because Holmes had missed the payments. Holmes caught him trying to repossess it and then came at him with part of an axle, yelling, you get the hell out of here or I'll brain you. So that's a little disturbing. The salesman was able to repossess the car but came back with a sheriff's deputy in order to do it. As, <laughs> as you should. Yes, it's a smart move. Smart move. Uh, so Jack and Evelyn Holmes had a son, David, in April 1927, a daughter, Joyce, in December 1928. Jack was said to be a good father. He played with the kids when he was around, but he wasn't home too often. Work kept him running around, I guess. In 1932, he tried going back to school. He really wanted to be a football coach. He attended two semesters at San Jose State before dropping out. But one thing that people there noticed, much like us, Jack Holmes was a true crime aficionado. He loved reading the newspapers, specifically the crime section. He really enjoyed pointing out where the criminals screwed up and always talked about how the perfect crime might be committed. I meant to tell you at the beginning my name for my episode notes. Double Dunning-Kruger. <laughs> really, it should be single Dunning-Kruger because there really is only one person suffering severely from Dunning-Kruger here. But uh, I couldn't resist the I like alliteration. It. Alliteration is <laughs> yeah. wonderful. Yes. He also had inquired as to how to get on the police force. Yeah, he needed a psyche valve. He really did, yes. There was some stuff going on there. There's lots of red flags here. I mean, you, you've got the high school wants to relive the glory days by getting into, like, football coach. Yes. So there's some definite red flags there. And then the uh, the true crime, this is how I would have done it. Mm-hmm. And I mean, like, yeah, we're crazy, too. But... <laughs> He started it. He started it. You were absolutely right. And through all of this, he kept on doing his job, and part of that job was selling oil to service stations. And that's where he met and befriended kidnapper number two, Harold Thurmond. So he was born Thomas Harold Thurmond. He was went by Harold. He was 27 in 1933 worked at a San Jose service station that until 1932 had been owned by his father. But when his dad sold it, he was like, okay, here's the condition. You got to take my son and give him a job because it's just, please, please. <laughs> He's not going to be doing anything else. He really was kind of the black sheep of the family. And in the book Swift Justice, he is called backwards and slow-witted. Yeah, I have lesser-witted accomplice. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> there definitely was some comparison as to the intelligence of these two men, and Harold Thurmond came out in a distant second. Yeah. <laughs> Despite the Dunning-Kruger that somebody else was experiencing. He was born on June 20th, 1906. His family was a group of very devout Baptists. Very devout. 
And he had one older surviving brother and five sisters. Three of them were older. Two of them were younger. One schoolmate called him a kind of a queer duck. <laughs> I just, I, I want to bring that back. <laughs> Can we just walk around and call people queer ducks? I don't think it'll go well. I don't think it'll go well either, but you have many plans that won't go well. That's true. <laughs> That's very true. I was just telling her about my dildo plan. So, like, I have all these ideas, but Queer Duck is now one of them. <laughs> We're bringing it back, people. And there was a severe head injury in his childhood oh, days. no. Not the head injury. Honestly, it's so prevalent. It's such a damn cliche at this point. Every time I see it, I'm like, well, there it is. I knew to expect it. Ding, 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 <laughs> yeah. folks. Beep. Beep, 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 head injury. All right, and that's the end of our podcast. <laughs> I hope you guys enjoyed uh, titty torpedoes, head injuries, and balls deep that one time. Yeah. We're done. <laughs> that was a good summary <laughs> of, the, of the show so far. But no, it's going to continue. And so Harold Thurmond also, he dropped out of San Jose High School. He hopped around jobs until his dad hooked him up at the service station and then later sold it and was like, please keep my son on. Nepotism is king is what we're learning here. It really is. Two out of three of the major participants of this story are, uh, are enjoying the benefits of nepotism. Life wasn't so super great, though, despite that plum service station job. A romantic heartbreak in 1931 led him to pick up a nice hobby of drinking, and his Baptist family was not really approving of this hobby, as you might imagine. His mother, though, had faith that he would come back to the godly side eventually. I have news for her. He drank the dark liquor. (laughs) Satan's swill. His boss at the service station called him... I feel sorry for him when we get to these quotes, honestly, even knowing everything I know, but very easily led and said he had about an eight-year-old mentality. Well, no, but you can still feel bad for him because he might not have really known everything that was going on. He was just doing the things he was told to do. Yeah, yeah, that is true. He was easily led is the thing. And the eight-year-old mentality probably was a big part of that. So yeah, I you, I think you can still feel sorry for people who do heinous things because we have to view everybody as human and view the ability to do those heinous things as human. Because let's face it, they don't just turn into monsters just because they do something bad. They're still human. Yeah. They've a, a human who's done a monstrous thing, but that doesn't make a monster. So. I don't know. Some of them are monsters. I don't think in this case he's a monster, though. I think he, he's... But even the monsters, we... I feel like even if we call them monsters, we're taking away that understanding that we need to have that monstrousness is part of humanity. Very unfortunately. I'm not celebrating it. I'm not happy about it. It's part of the reason I have freaking anxiety disorder. I, 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 can, I can go with that. I'm kind of a monster. No, you're not at all. I mean... You've uh, never dated me. Uh, <laughs> Ted Bundy was a person that was on this planet, and yet you call yourself a monster. <laughs> I'm a fun monster. You're a fun monster. I'm a fun monster. <laughs> so, so, yeah, I just have feelings about that. It's hard for me because I do sometimes sympathize, not empathize, but sympathize with people who end up 
committing criminal acts. There's a difference between you and me because I empathize. <laughs> oh, there you go. There it is. Yeah, <laughs> that's what it is. Yeah, there it is. But I have this the sympathy for them, especially if they're they're led down the thorny path and don't even realize that there's brambles. <sighs> it's hard having this compassion for people who've done terrible things. I don't enjoy it. I don't like it. <laughs> it's not fun. <laughs> I really wish I could just hate them and be done with it. But I can't because I feel like we really need to acknowledge that to really paraphrase, to be monstrous can be human. Doesn't mean it's okay. It doesn't mean you should. But, you know, in, in Thurman's case, he had the mentality of an eight-year-old. Yes. He had a head injury in his youth. Yes. He now has a drinking problem. Let's kill even more of those brain cells that people were already saying he didn't have a lot of to start with. True. So he's an easily led dolt. Mm-hmm. A queer duck, if you will. <laughs> and I can't put a lot of blame on him because I don't know that he was really aware of all the things that he was doing. It's really tough to tell when we get down to it. And we'll get there. Yeah. But it's really tough to tell. But just something for the, the listeners to think about as to whether or not he was super aware or whether he was, you know, quote unquote, just following orders. Yeah. And then what at the end of the show, there? you guys can hit us up on social media and tell us what you think of our queer ducks. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Old Tiny Carmi on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. So... <laughs> So, yeah, there's a, there's a lot of, I think, debate that can happen there over somebody who has what appears to be maybe a head injury-induced intellectual disability and what kind of complicity they have in their actions. Are they competent enough mentally to be able to tell between right and wrong? And we really won't know in this case, but where these two were in 1933 when everything happened in the lead-up, uh, Harold was stealing from his employer... <laughs> As much as, possibly as much as $300, which is $6,000 today. And he was fired, but he would still just pop up at the service station from time to time. Apparently he had some connections with a couple of bootleggers and he would still bring his old boss who'd fired him and who he was still making payments towards for the stolen money, sometimes. He would just bring him some bootleg liquor. Just like, here you go, buddy. This month's payment. <laughs> yeah, all right. Whiskey. And Jack Holmes was wooing a former high school sweetheart, Gertrude Estenson, who was also married. I'm going to say he's married with two kids. Yeah, like, yes, he is. Not stopping him. And the two couples, the Estensons and the Holmes, became friends. They would hang out and bridge and... Swingers parties. Movies. It's always swingers parties with you. but It's always about sex. I know. It, well, I mean, in this case, for him, it really was. For Gertrude, I don't think. I mean, if he's given it to both ladies, the, the possibility is there that the other husband caught on and decided to play. He's not. We're pretty sure. He wants to. Oh, okay. He didn't get to do it that one time. No, he didn't get to do it that one time. Okay. Not with Gertrude, no. They had dated in high school, so it's entirely possible it happened in high school. We just don't know about it. But he wanted to do it at the very least again, if it had happened before, or once. Come over and let's play bridge. <laughs> London bridge. <laughs> No, the Eiffel Tower. So he basically ascribed his inability to, you know, consummate this wooing with a lack of money. He was like, well, I need more money in order to, to woo the woo. That's not how penises work. Like, <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't necessarily get bigger when you have more money. Really? I bet they've been lying to me all this time. Yes. Oh, damn. I'm gullible. <laughs> That's not how it works. The more money you have, the fatter your wallet. 
is not the wetter that the lady gets. <laughs> like, it's just not. It's true. That's yeah. not what does it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's true. I mean, maybe for some ladies, who knows? But he really thinks that money will be the key to getting her to him. Money is the key to Gertrude's in his mind. Chastity belt. And that is an absolute insult, I think. That is an absolute insult to her. Basically says, well, all she cares about is money. And so I, I think it's really shitty of him, personally. Well, he he's, sounds like an idiot anyway. It kind of sounds nice. like early nice guy. You know, like, well, if I just had enough money, all these jerks with money and looks are getting girls. Well, and that's the problem. I think he's he's so egotistical that it's never his fault. Nothing is his fault ever, no. Yeah, you're right about that. One thing that he's seeing as he's perusing the crime pages is a lot of kidnappings of wealthy people and the children of wealthy people throughout the year. Ransoms ranged from 30000 to 200000 which is $4 million today. Wow. Right? That last one was for Charles Urschel, an oil millionaire, and it was led by Machine Gun Kelly and resulted in 21 convictions. How do you look at this and be like, oh, clearly this is a success story and I should follow in their footsteps? I just don't get it. I don't get it. So Swift Justice mentions eight of these in 1933 in total. Eight kidnappings. Every single victim was released, and nearly all of them resulted in convictions. So you're looking at something that is unsuccessful, and you're like, well, I could do that better. Dunning-Kruger, people. Dunning-Kruger. For anybody who doesn't know, that's the idea that some people without abilities to do things think that they have more of an ability to do it than they actually do. Just to throw that out there in case there's anybody who hasn't heard about it, but it kind of became big in the past couple years for reasons. I don't know why. <laughs> Can't think of anything. Don't know anybody that falls under that. Not a one. Nope. To be fair, though, the Lindbergh kidnapping, which we talked about in another episode of the show, if you haven't heard it, go listen to it, had happened in 1932, but the ransom had been paid and the body had been discovered that same year. And at the time that this kidnapping was to occur, the Brooke Hart kidnapping, Richard Hauptman hadn't been arrested yet. So the world didn't know that the Lindbergh baby kidnapper, if you believe that he was the one, was out there, you know, and, and about to be found in just a few short months. So to his mind, that was the one out of all the recent kidnappings that had been successful. And one of these things is not like the other. What's the difference? Yeah, I wonder Dead what the difference is. Yes, it is. So, with all this information in mind, in the early fall of 1933, Holmes came to Thurmond, who he'd been hanging out with and bitching to about his inability to lure Gertrude Estenson to his bed. And he said, hey, so why don't we kidnap this guy, Brooke Hart? They kind of did a little bit leading up to this. In September, they collaborated on a robbery of an oil clerk with the Union Oil Company, which was Holmes's employer at the time. They got $716 in cash, or $14,000 today, and then about half that-ish in, like, checks and other formats that they had to put away for later. Then in October, they held up another oil company's clerk, kind of got about the same take, and uh, that, it kind of seemed like dress rehearsals. That, I think, was his former employer. So he's just robbing the clerks of anybody who's given him a job lately. 
But likes to burn those bridges. Yeah, on November 1st, Holmes lost his job. <laughs> it wasn't necessarily even because of the robberies. They didn't know. Just good timing. You really, right? Or not, if you think about it, because uh, that was when they decided that the heart kidnapping would be it for them. They'd be rich enough to quit. They didn't really view themselves as bad people. They just viewed themselves as people doing bad things temporarily. Temporarily. Yeah. So at that point in time, the population of San Jose was about 60,000, which seems kind of on the biggish side. But according to Farrell, it was very much kind of like a small town still. If you didn't know all three families, the Holmes, the Thurmans, and the Hearts, you at least knew one or two of them. As a matter of fact, the car salesman who had the encounter with Holmes also dated one of the boarders that the Thurman family took in. And Holmes's father was a tailor for one of Brooks' uncles. Yep. Yes. It's that small town everybody knows everybody or is related to them in some way, shape, or form. Can't go to the mall without seeing somebody you know. And that's why I don't go to... Well, nobody goes to the mall anymore, but... Uh, it, used, it used to be the way it was. That used to be the way it was. But obviously now you go to the mall and you see no one you know because you don't actually see any human beings. So let's talk about what happened next after the moment where we paused. But we're going to jump over to the family because Brooke has disappeared and they start to worry. He doesn't meet up with his father and sister, but his car is gone. So they start with the usual calling and looking around, trying to figure out if there had been some miscommunication in the plans, some sort of accident. And the worry just grows and grows because each phone call and each query and each question they ask just leads to absolutely nothing. Nobody has seen him after six o'clock. Nettie was at home recovering from a thyroidectomy from the previous month and not really doing super well. So at first they tried to hide it from her up until the point where they just couldn't anymore. They also had 15 employees of the department store out searching the roads for the Studebaker. And Alex Hart, once he kind of realized the severity of the situation, he was still uh, off the country club about to head over to his chamber of commerce meeting. And he had his eldest daughter called the chief of police within an hour or so. And of course, naturally, he'd been friends with the chief for years. So he has an in here. But really, the chief was not super concerned. He literally said, what do you want me to do? And they were like, um, anything? You're the, you're the police chief. You're the one who should answer that question. Don't you have any protocol? So Alex then went himself to the station to talk to the chief. And he really seemed not very interested in helping, even after talking to Alex himself. But things are only at a standstill for a very short time because at 9.30 p.m., the ransom call comes in. The kidnappers called the Hart home. Elise actually fields the first call where they inform her that her brother's been kidnapped. And then at 10.30 p.m., they call again with a ransom demand. Quote, he is safe, but it will cost you $40,000 to get him back. Don't get in touch with police or you will never see your son again. They already had been. By the way, that's $815,000 today, but that was pretty much it as far as communication went. They were, there were no instructions. There was no, we'll call you later. None of that. It was just, we want $40,000, click. Not helpful. You know what, though? According to the phone company records, the kidnappers had actually tried to reach the home three times, but the line was busy before they actually got connected. Oh, I didn't know that. They must have been calling around trying to get some answers. Yeah. And the thing is, 
the chief had actually done something. He had put an order to trace all calls to the heart home just before the call actually managed to make it through. So the timing worked out well there, and they were able to do some traces. I wonder if that's why it was busy, because they were busy setting up the trace. Ooh, that could have been it, too. I'm not sure, because he might not have needed to call the house to do that, because everything was done by via operators, literally with the physical switchboard oh, yeah. back then. So they might have just needed to call and be like, okay, if any calls come in for this particular house for the heart home, we need to know where it originates from. So that might have been it. But it could be what you said, too. I'm very much guessing at how this works. I know it was still switchboard operators, but I don't know if they needed to call the house. The first call had come from a speakeasy in San Francisco. And the second one came from the Whitcomb Hotel a few blocks away from the speakeasy. The Studebaker was found sometime after midnight on a country road northwest of San Jose. The headlights were on, but there was no real sign of a struggle. One witness who'd passed it earlier said it had been there at that point for seven hours. And there were no fingerprints found in the car, so no luck there with figuring out who it was. But then again, the fingerprint database wasn't exactly super established back then. There was something, but it wasn't anything like we think of now. Definitely not. And I, I think they'd probably have to sit there with like a magnifying glass and compare them one at a time. The FBI gets pulled in, and this is because of the Lindbergh baby kidnapping, that they can do this. Congress had passed the Lindbergh Act only the year before that specified that kidnapping became a federal crime under these three possible conditions. If the victim was taken across state lines, don't have any evidence of that yet. If the kidnappers used extortion, well, done. And or when the postal system was used. Gonna do that soon. So they set up a command post at the Hart home and even tapped the phones of people close to Brooke, whom they thought the kidnappers might try to contact. So everybody's phone's getting tapped here. Everybody getting tapped. (laughs) Although I think it's more like get it set up to trace and not necessarily have listening devices, because I didn't see anything about any dictographs or anything being recorded. Dictographs. Dictographs. That's a joke for the patrons to enjoy. There were, naturally and unfortunately theories that maybe he died by suicide as he had very recently, like within the past couple days, suffered the loss of a friend in an accident and was still grieving. And of course, it's nice to see that these elopement theories are equal opportunity because there was that too. There were the theories that he had a girl on the side, he'd eloped with her and As far as explaining away the ransom call, they were like, well, that's clearly just a diversion because that's not incredibly cruel or anything. You can't think highly of somebody who you would say would terrorize his family with ransom calls saying he'd been kidnapped just so he could elope on the down low. Yeah, that's... (laughs) You must not think very highly of someone if you have those thoughts about them or you're just trying to rationalize it and really reaching far in order to do so. Well, I mean, yeah. Make some shit up. Sounds good. Sells papers. Yeah, that too. There's that too. (laughs) We don't know if these theories actually came from anybody who knew him or if they came from people writing for the papers. The FBI investigators tried to find information from his very meticulous diaries that he kept. Odd. He had finished his 1932 diary with a note that 1933 would be continued in the next journal, but they never found it. Never found No idea. That whole year. 
just gone as far as diaries are concerned. And you may consider it odd, but diarying and, and, and journaling much more prevalent back then. In fact, I was at a used bookstore years ago and found a diary from a girl who had cataloged every day the outfits she wore. I'm wondering if it wasn't on his person because, I mean, if if you're into that sort of thing, you might want to take it with so you can just jot stuff down during the day. I mean, I keep my bullet journal in my purse sometimes. If he was had a smallish diary that would maybe fit in an inside suit jacket pocket or something like that, it's entirely possible, yes. It could have been on him. Yeah, we'll never know. The FBI found out that a reporter from the San Francisco Examiner had actually managed to infiltrate the Hart home and had stolen pictures from the family album. Cute. There are times when I look back at my very brief time in journalism and I'm a little ashamed, not of anything that I've done, but of the things that other people have done that make me feel bad about it. Yes. Yeah, they kicked they kicked that uh, journalist out pretty quick. The FBI was like, no, mm, get out. The police were pretty sure that this was a local job because of how well the kidnappers knew Brooks' routine, like they knew six o'clock, quitting time. And also, they called his sister by name when they called the house. That's definitely a tell right there. Yeah, like how do you know it's Elise or Miriam? Because they actually talked to both of them. Miriam answered the second call. Yeah, yeah. So it's very interesting that they're able to even pinpoint his sister's voices. Now, of course, this is blowing up in the press, so there's tons of sightings all over. They get lost in the shuffle. This one did end up published in the paper, but it was kind of like, you know, like very end of the article where you're not really going to see it. Police last night were investigating a report that a young man answering a heart's description, accompanied by two men, had crossed the San Mateo Bridge Thursday night in a closed sedan. That's a clue. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, I understand the being overloaded with tips. Things are going to get lost in the shuffle. It's just going to happen. It's just unfortunate, but... Now, then a wallet was found on the guardrail of a tanker Midway, that was moored in San Francisco, a merchant seaman, tee-hee-hee, found it. It had no money in it, but it did have Brookhart's driver's license, library card, credit card, and all of his various other... It had, like, 18 cards with his name on it. All of his cards. It was, like, 99% sure that it was his, yes. That was 60 miles from where the car was found. And so there was this ocean liner, Lurleen that had been uh, serviced by the Midway right before sailing from San Francisco to L.A. So that ocean liner detectives were like, well, it was right next to the Midway, so we should probably search that in case, you know, somebody got onto that ship, either Brooke or whoever is responsible for that. They searched that liner and they found nothing. Except Babe Ruth. He wasn't lost. He was on vacation. But he was on the Lurline, Lurleen, I'm not sure. And so they found Babe Ruth and woke him up. Can I get your autograph? Yeah. Once you put some pants on? Really, please. No, put some pants on, babe. So. Swinging for the fences. <laughs> I hate to sit my head on the back of my chair. 
picture of Babe Ruth coming out with his dick oh. swinging. What's up, guys? Oh, my God. So, how did this wallet get on the tanker midway? Turned out that Thurmond had made the ransom demand, and then he was supposed to toss it over an Oakland ferry as he made the crossing over the bay. Instead, while he was pacing the pier and waiting for the ferry, he just threw it from the, the pier, and it landed on the Midway's guardrail. It's awesome. And you know what? Like, that was a really, for them, probably an unfortunate accident to have done that. It lands on the rail instead of in the water. Of all the shots to make. I mean, that's... that's now, the... they did. They did take the money out of it. Yes, they did. And split it. And split it. So they had $3.75 each. Ooh. Don't spend it all in one place, boys. They, they spent it on cigarettes and gas. Well, yeah, I mean, yeah. The the aim of the wallet, though, it just reminds me of that time when we were playing darts at the bar. And, and you hit the chair? Either that time or the time that my dart went to the quarter slot. Oh, yeah, that was pretty amazing. Was pretty amazing. <laughs> I was like, how does this not get me a free game? How? So how? Christy is amazingly bad at darts. Oh, I'm terrible. I'm terrible. But it's incredible. And it's so fun to play because you never know who's going to die. <laughs> you really don't. The patrons at the bar would actually get up and move when I started playing. And the ones who were right next to the machine, they were like, nope, I'm not taking this chance. I've, I've seen her aim. No, we use the steel tip dart, so it's, it's fair. This episode is sponsored by Best Fiends. It's summertime. Summer is my favorite season. The barbecues, sitting around a fire, going swimming. I love it all. And Best Fiends is my favorite game. The adorable characters, the fun puzzles, thousands of levels. Love it, love it, love it. It's all so much more fun than other matching puzzle games out there. I especially love how there's always something new in the game. Jackson and I always play while we listen to podcasts, and it's so exciting to open the app and find out what new event or challenge the Best Fiends people have come up with. And with so many levels, you can't possibly get bored. Speaking of, it's level check time! I am up to level 2,560. Ooh, I am at level 4,480. I'm never going to catch you, but at least I'm less than halfway. Yes, exactly. That is a cup half full way of looking at it. So download Best Fiends free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R. Best fiends. In this search, at this point in time, we now have three counties and the FBI involved. There was one report from a potential witness that had, around the time of some of the events of this kidnapping happened, had seen not two, but five men in two cars. And was able to pinpoint them, the cars, pretty well. So, but that, again, kind of got passed over and ignored. And still to this day, it's kind of a question mark on it. One lead came in that two men gathering driftwood from the shore by the bridge had seen a car drive onto the bridge at about 7.25 p.m. Thursday. It stopped on the bridge. And then they heard a man yelling, help, help, leave me alone. Then, after a little bit of time had passed, they heard the man say, I can't hang on much longer. They're trying to get to the man. 
the car swung around and went back the way it came. The men, by the time they reached the bridge or the point at the bridge where the car had been, they couldn't see anything. I mean, it's dark at this point. It's November. It's around 730. Probably not a lot of great lighting on this bridge. So it's understandable. And what's not understandable is that the sheriff said the lead, quote, didn't amount to anything. If you're noticing a trend in leads that should have been followed up on but were completely dismissed, you, dear listener, are correct. (laughs) Another lead came in that on the Monday following the kidnapping, two men had been spotted acting a little strangely on a dirt road southwest of San Jose. Two cars pulled off the road, and one driver got out of his car and into the other. One man in the car then wrote something on a piece of paper, and then the witnesses who reported this, they passed the car. And at that point, the man hid behind a newspaper. The witnesses got the license plates, very smart, and they took the numbers to the sheriff to run, and he did. He came up with the names of two local men, Harold Thurmond and Jack Holmes. Actually, I think Thurmond might have been his father, but yeah. The sheriff declined to take this particular lead any further. Uh, He might have assumed that Holmes couldn't be involved in anything like this because they were fellow Masons and friends. (sighs) Amber's eyes just went all the way to the back of her skull, and they will not be returning anytime soon. Nope. (laughs) Blinded. Yep. Two more ransom notes came in really shortly after this sighting. So I'm going to read these to you. This first one. Your son is okay and treated well. One more peep to police will be his finish. You have made one squawk. Another will be too bad. We will have $40,000. You get 520s unmarked, 2010s, 2005s. Put it in a satchel, black. Be ready to take a week's trip on an hour notice. Get the stewed roadster. Have radio installed. When told to go, you will take orders from KPO. You better do as told. KPO is a radio station. So now there's this question mark of, okay, are they going to be somehow transmitting orders to the person taking the ransom well, and via the, the radio station? The Studebaker already had a radio in it. They'd been in the Studebaker. They I didn't realize that. Yeah. I didn't make that connection. Okay, yeah. Very much, yeah. This, um, and also... He didn't drive a car. There is that problem that keeps on popping up. Yeah. I'm going to say again. Actually, no. I'm going to sing it this time. Dunning-Kruger. It's so absurd. So this is the second one. We presume you have gotten our letter from Sacramento. You have money as demanded. Indicate same with a numeral at the Market Street window of your store like this. One. So put the number one on like some sort of sign in your window. You will be advised when to start your trip as noted in former note. As long as contents of these notes are known to you alone, Brooke is safe. By now, you know Federals or anyone else is powerless to bring Brooke to you except through us. When A.J. Hart, who will carry the money, starts his trip, he will carry the money in a black satchel, small, beside him in the seat of stewed roadster. If anyone follows this car or knows its errand, Brooke will not be returned alive. Our next contact will tell you where to go and be prepared to start on the minute. Your every move is being observed. Await further contact. And these are all scrawled in pencil, cheap paper, and postcards. But you know what? He actually, he, they did put a sign in the window. And the sign said, 
AJ Hart does not drive. Well, the number one sign didn't. The number two sign, when they get to that, that was the one where they were like, okay, we should probably get this fact across from them because they're really set on AJ Hart being the one to drive. <laughs> and that's not going to happen because he can't. He doesn't know how. So, they, yeah, they put the one in the window. But really, like you said, that fact that AJ Hart couldn't drive, that's also starting to make them question just how professional these guys might be. Because if they were professionals, they would have figured that out. They would have thought to check at some point whether the person who they're asking to drive is able to. So that's definitely becoming a big discussion point. On Tuesday, November 14th, a call comes to Brooke's best friend, Charlie O'Brien, and they told him to relay a message to A.J. Hart take a satchel with $40,000 in it, hop in the stewed, and drive to L.A. Someone in a white mask would take the money from the car before he got there. And the plan was to have both the kidnappers in the same car, but one of them is riding on the running board, pass Hart on the road, and snatch up the satchel as they went. You're blinking at me in a way that is very much exactly what I expected upon hearing that plan. Yeah, yes. it's such a good plan. It's such a good plan, right? Very smart. So, of course, not being actually able to physically or legally, uh, AJ Hart doesn't do this. So they call him up to try to arrange it with him, and he's like, no, I want proof. I want proof of life. Is my son actually alive? They give him a just a smidge. They say, well, here's what Brooke was wearing and some of that actually hadn't been in the papers or was contradicted in the papers. The paper said he wasn't wearing a hat, and they said he was wearing this color hat. And that, you know, second one was actually the truth. So, well, the papers are doing a lot here. And, yeah. and for some reason, this was a very divisive case. So I just have, like, a quick little side story here. So shortly after Hart had disappeared, a resident of Santa Clara, radio technician Oscar Rolf, shot his father Jacob to death before killing himself because they had been arguing about this case. Oh, my God. I had no idea. That is amazing that you found that. Holy shit. Wow. So that okay. was on November 11th of 1933. That's only two days after the kidnapping. Yes. Oscar had commented to his parents that he believed he looked like the handsome heart boy. His parents disagreed, and they got into a row before... The son shot the father and then himself. So the son thought that he resembled Brooke Hart? Yes. And, and he got mad that they didn't agree the with him? Fight, and then he killed his dad and himself. I feel like there's probably a lot of underlying issues here. I'm sure there's so much more to it. But the, there, was a, there was a pile of wood, and the, this kidnapping was just a, a match. <laughs> but there was just a lot of discussion about this case. Oh, yeah. Going all around the country. Especially because he was such a golden boy and he was very good looking. It, it definitely garners more attention. But Absolutely. Yeah. No, that's so that amazing. My, my fun little side story there. That was amazing. Good find. Holy shit. Wow. I'm like sitting here just shocked at this. Oh, wow. People okay. died. People did <laughs> die. Wow. So, of course, AJ Hart is not able to comply with the kidnapper's demands that he jump in a car and drive. Yes, he demands proof. He's like, okay. I need more proof. Maybe a handwriting sample or something. And they're like, mm, he's too far away. It would take a couple weeks for us to actually get that proof from him to you. 
And they also sort of imply that there was some kind of larger organization with a headquarters behind the kidnapping. This is very uh, evil mastermindish what they're implying here. They gave him orders to take the 930 train to L.A. with the money. And then somewhere along the way, the masked man would pick up the money and Brooke would be released the next morning. The discrepancy here being something that A.J. Hart picked up on. How are you going to get him to me the next morning, but you can't get me his handwriting for two weeks? Hmm. Yeah, he's a smart man. He's a very smart man. He didn't just get to where he was through being the son of the department store owner originally. He is a smart man. So he decides not to follow their orders, which has to be the toughest decision to make. Because there's always going to be that part of your brain that's like, maybe if you followed your orders, maybe you could get him back. And then the rest of your brain is fighting against it with logic. But the love of a child doesn't know logic. You know, wanting your child back and safe does not know logic. But he is a very smart man. And he's like, if they cannot give me proof of life, why should I give them money? Exactly. Yeah. And everybody knows what happened in the Lindbergh kidnapping. Mm -hmm. So the cops trace that particular phone call to a parking lot and they go there. But the caller had fled just four minutes before they got there. But uh, if they're planning to grab the ransom off of Alex Hart on the train, then the sheriff and the FBI know exactly where to find the kidnapper. Train station, train, something along those lines. The kidnapper's going to have to be present in order to do so. So they grab the parking attendant to help them point out this person who made the call, and they head to the depot. Or they start to. This is from uh, Harry Farrell's book. Then... Before the two cars could pull away from the parking lot came an episode of farce. It was the misfortune of Melville Trengrove, a young bank teller who lived nearby, to be out for an evening stroll. The FBI men saw him first, a shadowy figure moving along in the dark. Surmising him to be the fleeing telephone caller, they sprung from their car and jumped him with drawn guns. Trengrove started to run, and one of the FBI men brought him down with a flying tackle. By the time Ernig, that's one of the FBI guys, who knew, or no, sorry, that's the sheriff. <laughs> There's a lot of characters. Who knew Trengrove reached the scene and extricated him, a crowd had begun to gather. The five-minute incident was an unmitigated calamity. The secrecy of the manhunt, especially its downtown focus and its instant response to the ransom phone call, had been compromised. An upright citizen had been roughed up and critical minutes had been lost. Poor guy, just in the wrong place at the wrong time. Talk about it, yeah? So they go to the depot after that whole thing. That ends up being a bust, at least as far as they know. The kidnappers actually were there to watch for A.J. Hart, but just they never picked them out or saw them. They must have been well hidden, or the FBI wasn't looking hard enough. Either one, possibly both. Probably walked right <laughs> past them and just didn't notice it. Probably, yeah. Uh, probably put a newspaper up over their faces. Yeah, and they weren't <laughs> dressed as shadowy figures. Yes. So on Wednesday the 15th, a third ransom letter arrives, this one even longer. And also keep in mind, these are being sent from all over the state, postmarked from everywhere. This is just a portion of it, by the way, because I was not reading this whole thing. You don't trust us, we don't trust you, so further discussion is useless. We hold the cards in this case. Brooke is not with the writer, but is held at a remote point. When payment is made, a telegram by contacting parties will release Brooke. Brooke is being treated as well as possible, but the case is getting too much publicity for us to hold him any longer. 
We are sorry to do this because Brooke is a manly lad, but he has seen us and is too liable to identify us. Killing him is the easy way with little risk for us. Returning him is what we demanded the ransom for. Sorry, I can't get some further proof for you, but I said the writer as a contract man only. We do not hold Brooke Hart here. Mr. Hart, unless our principals hear favorably from you by 7.30 on 11.15.33, you will not be contacted again. It will be useless. If you comply to our demands, put a numeral two where the one it now is as soon as it is received. This is the next signal that you've received the message. Flip out the one for a two. And that's when the I cannot drive, which it just feels like such a facepalm moment for the kidnappers <laughs> when they drive past and they're like, oh, damn it. Stop making plans where I'm driving. I don't do <laughs> yes. that. It also feels like almost this sad, dry humor from AJ Hart, poor man. Just to make sure that the message gets across, AJ Hart gives a statement to the press, make sure they also know that he can't drive. He really wants to make sure they understand this because it seems to be a linchpin in many of their plans to get the ransom. And of course, there's also another reason to put this out in the press and everything. You want the kidnappers to call again to revise the ransom agreements, and then hopefully it can be traced, which actually worked. At around 8 p.m., the kidnappers called again, and Alex Hart managed to really stretch out the call. One thing I'd like to note is the caller loved ordering him to go PDQ, which uh, is pretty damn quick. Although I grew up with my mother saying, you better clean your room, PDQ. And when I asked what PDQ means, she said pretty darn quick. So <laughs> that's an older slang too, because I was like, is that 1930s or was it from before? And I looked on Edam online and it actually originated in 1875. Hmm. So they like their acronyms too, it turns out. Oh. L-O-L, O-M-G. He said PDQ four times. You get Charlie O'Brien and go PDQ. So yeah, that's... You could just find the guy that says PDQ a lot and you've got your guy immediately. That's your identification. Who needs fingerprints? No. And I feel like AJ was probably just face palming every time they called him though. Yeah. I feel like he's the guy that's like, okay, one, stop saying that. And two, I've told you 14 times I cannot drive. Stop asking me to drive a car. Well, at this point, they wanted him to get Brooke's best friend, Charlie, to do the job. So he really stretches out the call. He stretched it out longer than three minutes by just constantly arguing with, you know, well, I can't drive, but I don't want Charlie Bryan to have to do this. And uh, anyhow, why should I do this when you haven't given me proof of life yet again? And just rehashing the same argument over and over, probably frustrating the hell out of them, which I enjoy. And so, yeah, they did trace the call to 222 South Market Street in San Jose. This was the location of the Plaza Garage. And it was only about one block from the hotel where the FBI men were staying. Yeah, I have 150 feet. It's actually 150 feet from the San Jose police station. Oh, uh, yeah, that's what I have. <laughs> so he's got the San Jose police station 150 feet away and the FBI a block away. Good choice. Good choice. Yeah, it was a great, great parking garage to make a payphone call. Well, the thing is, is that somebody uh, was using that garage because they had left their wife and were staying in a hotel that used that garage. So they had parking privileges there. I wonder who in the story might leave his wife. Well, let's see. Hmm. hmm. Jack Holmes, maybe? The uh, 
sheriff and the FBI agents do meet up at the garage. There's a man on the phone. He hangs up right as they get to him. It's not Jack. Doing the dirty work here, of course, is Harold Thurmond. He said when they asked that he'd been talking to his mother. And then when they asked him if he'd actually been talking to A.J. Hart, he went white and they arrested him. Jack Holmes, meanwhile, was supposed to be watching the garage entrance, but for some reason he totally missed the cops and the FBI rushing in. <laughs> Amazing. Must have been one fascinating newspaper article. He was probably critiquing a crime that had been committed while he's messing up his. <laughs> yeah, he's just sitting there and like he, he looks over his paper and he sees them running. He's like, oh, shit, too late. I'll just keep reading. Yeah, let's see about this murder here. Rather than flee when Thurman didn't come back out, like leave town, he just cruised around for a little bit. And then he went back to the plaza garage, used his parking privileges to park there. I went back to the hotel, which, by the way, was the California Hotel. You can leave anytime you want, but you can never check out. I'm just reversing it because the name yeah. is reversed. Yeah, you get it. You I get, get it. it. <laughs> just because I said it doesn't mean it's funny. The FBI men take Thurmond back to their hotel. They had him talk to their agent at the Hart home who knew the kidnapper's voice because they'd been listening in on the calls all along. They also had other people at the house, like the sisters and A.J. Hart, identify the voice. They had Thurmond give a handwriting sample in which he basically wrote word for word at their dictation, one of the ransom notes. Then they sent that off for analysis, and they took him to the jail for the full interrogation. Now, at first in the interrogation, he tried to give them a story where he was just pretending to be the kidnapper to collect the ransom. It takes them a couple hours, but they do get a confession out of him, and we learned what happened after the car stopped on the bridge. Here's the confession, or at least the relevant part. We stopped about a half mile out on the San Mateo Bridge, at which point Brookhart was ordered out of the car, and Jack Holmes hit him over the head with a brick. When Jack Holmes first hit Brooke Hart over the head with the brick, he hollered, help, help. But Jack hit him over the head again with the brick and knocked Brooke Hart unconscious. And then I took some bailing wire from the car and bound the arms of Brooke Hart around the body close to his shoulders. Jack Holmes told me to get rid of him. Jack Holmes took the upper part of Brooke Hart's body and I took him from the knees down. And together we lifted Brooke Hart onto the railing of the San Mateo Bridge and tossed him into the bay. I recall as we lifted him up onto the San Mateo Bridge, he struggled slightly. The water at the bridge in the bay was really shallow due to the tides, and it seemed like Brooke actually did survive the 35-foot drop from the bridge. He might have been able to get out of the wire restraining him and move under the bridge, and in that process he may have been shot at, although whether any of those bullets got him, we don't know for sure. I did have to snag this incredible bit from Swift Justice. So here is a description of the moments after this confession. The Inquisitors sat rapt as Harold admitted his slovenly decision to toss Brooke's pocketbook from the pier rather than into the middle of the bay from a ferry. They were appalled, not alone by the sheer brutality of the crime. Apart from that, it had to be the dumbest crime of the decade, consisting as the Chronicle would later observe, of, quote, one idiocy after another. The white mask ransom scheme was incredibly childish. The store window numerals were ludicrous melodrama. Committing the murder on a bridge with only two exits had been foolhardy. 
The kidnappers' greatest folly of all have been darting around downtown for two days, placing one call after another from at least five different booths within a half-mile radius, the last of which was 150 feet from the San Jose police station. So yes, Stunning Kruger is in play. They then take Thurmond to the garage and have him point out Holmes's car. They get the attendant to their dirty work and take out the distributor rotor so that the car wouldn't be available should Holmes manage to get to it and try to flee. So they disable the car. Then they take Thurman to the California Hotel. They find Holmes's room, and they do the thing where they have him lure Holmes out. He's the one who knocks on the door. He says, hey, Jack, I got to talk to you. And Jack comes to the door all sleepy. What do you want? And he's like, surprise, I'm here with the police and the FBI. It's not your birthday at all. They get Holmes. They take him to the station. They read Thurman's confession to him, after which he says, if you've got that, there's no use talking. I didn't know Harold would be a snitch. Yeah. (sighs) Two can keep a secret if one of them is dead is really... I'm assuming it was probably a saying back then. I don't know for sure. Maybe this story inspired it. It could be. So... Holmes did give a confession soon after that. There were a few differences, just kind of minor, but also could have some sway in culpability. He said they tricked Brooke into thinking that they were just going to transfer him between cars when they let him out of the car at the bridge. He said he hit Brooke with his fist and not a brick. In his version, they threw Brooke over the bridge and then Brooke struggled in the water Thurman said, give me the gun, I'll fix him up. And then, according to Holmes, quote, I gave him the gun and he climbed over the railing and held onto the bridge stringers and fired away. We couldn't see Brooke, it was dark, but we could hear him floundering about. He also claimed the whole thing was Thurman's idea. Including the murder, as you can tell from that little bit from the confession. He's definitely pinning it all on Thurmond, which was probably the idea He did say that he wrote the ransom notes, but handwriting analysis said that Thurman did it. That's just weird. Why take responsibility for that part that Thurman did? I I don't know. You're usually able to explain things that criminals do, but I think when they do really stupid things, our only real fallback is, well, because they were stupid. Well, yes and no. Okay. This might have been part of the plan should they get caught, is to have differing stories. Because since they cannot corroborate each other, it might be impermissible in court. True. Because it's it's a he said, she said. You can't use it in court if it doesn't match. I mean, you can. You can certainly try. You could try, but more than likely you get thrown out because why is this guy's word better than this guy's word? I think a smarter thing to do if they had actually planned ahead, which I don't honestly think they'd done. I don't think they did yeah. either. I don't think they planned for getting caught, but I think a smarter thing to do would be each other's alibi. You know, each of you says, I was at the movies with him. <laughs> and boom. And if they had actually gone to the movies together afterwards, might have helped too. Then you have ticket stubs for around the same time. Like nobody can... Yeah, there's a couple hours unaccounted for, but how much can you accomplish in a couple hours, aside from, you know, kidnapping and killing a man, which they did. But, I mean, it could have given them a milder sentence, too, since they didn't have any hard, 
proof and they were saying different things. I think there's a severe lack of thinking ahead. Despite all of Jack Holmes thinking he knows what's what, mm -hmm. there's a severe lack of thinking ahead and thinking out all the possibilities and having contingency plans and that stuff. I think there's just none of that here. We're not dealing with master criminals, obviously. No. And apparently after they committed the murder, they were both a little thrown by their ability to do that. Holmes said that the next day they had this exchange. Thurmond, I didn't know I could do a thing like that. It sure was terrible. Holmes, yes, it sort of got to me. I didn't think I could do it either. Then they were like, well, how much should we ask for ransom? Because they hadn't planned that far ahead. Literally, mm. they hadn't, they, they had killed the man without actually planning how much they were going to ask for ransom for the kidnapping they had also just committed. It's wildly incompetent. Yes. <gasps> Wait a second. Wildly incompetent. Oh, that's a new one. Please, criminals, give me many opportunities to use that. The confessions were printed in full in the papers. And they were actually leaked by a man named Lewis O'Neill, who is sort of a local kingmaker. He had his hands in a lot of aspects of the case, but also sort of kept in the background at the same time, but also tried to not be in the background. He's a weird dude, so. Little oh. finger. He's little finger. He's very little finger. All the families are in shock, but holy hell. Holmes's mother. Oh, lady. Oh, lady. Nope, nope, nope. I have a lot of note for this woman for what she said. I'm terribly sorry for the hearts, but I feel our position is even worse than theirs. No one has said their son was guilty of a hideous crime, but I don't and won't believe it about Jack. And there's a certain point where she should have stopped talking, and it was before the but, the yep. first one. Yep. I'm terribly sorry for the hearts. End statement. Bye. <laughs> but it's so much worse for me, the embarrassment that has been brought to my family. The shame of a false accusation on my delightful, wonderful son who's trying to cheat on his wife and everything and is already committed to robberies. So they send out a newly minted lawyer, as in minted the day before, <laughs> Marshall Hall, a neighbor of Brooks and a yacht owner to search for the body. He was a yacht. <laughs> they had already pulled him in to guard Holmes, but he had to, he tried to grab like his grandfather's gun, I think it was his or his father's or his grandfather's some sort of service revolver. He could only find three shells because he was sleepy. It was like four a.m. when they called him in, and once he found those three shells, he was like, "I don't think I really remember how this gun works, so I'd best leave it at home." So he went in. They pulled him in to guard Jack Holmes. No gun, nothing. He's it, just, he's just there, and he's like, if he'd have gone out the window, I'd have let him. <laughs> because he was like, I'm not going to fight this guy. So as far as the family, the Hart family, first the sisters are told, and then they're pretty much given the task of telling the rest of the family. Alex Jr., who was 13 at the time, later said it was, quote, just tremendous upheaval, traumatic experiences all over the house. And both his mother, who was already ill, and his father, who was not doing so great at the time, they were both confined to their beds. They got many condolence telegrams, one from Franklin Delano Roosevelt, president at the time. Wow. And the town, meanwhile, is pissed. This is from Swift Justice. 
Never before had Sheriff Bill Ernig seen the temper of the town so brittle. Since the day after Brookhart's disappearance, a surly, swollen tide of unrest had arisen. It saturated the establishment circles in which the Hart family moved, the bully boy rednecks of the street, the youthful thrill-seekers, and the desperate ranks of the idle jobless. The First Street businessmen were as much a part of it as Brooks' stalwart friends at Santa Clara University. For the first time in 50 years, lynch talk was in the air. Before the capture of Thurman and Holmes, the muttering had been desultory and unfocused, but Erning had heard enough of it to make him apprehensive now about his prisoner's safety. And the last remembered lynching in California had been in 1920 when uh, they lynched three gang members who had killed three police officers. So sort of an eye for an eye for an eye (laughs) situation there. There's also gossip spreading around that the killers had intended to kidnap basically anyone in town who had money and or their children and or their grandchildren. Feels kind of like that that wave that swept across the country after Columbine, mm-hmm. when every high school had a hit list at some point in time. I remember ours was supposedly written on the bathroom wall. And I think ours was found in the bathroom as well. So it seemed to be the go-to place yeah. for the hit list. I mean, somebody will find it pretty quickly, whereas if you just drop a piece of paper in the hall, the janitor will sweep it up six hours later and put it in the garbage. So yeah, the bathroom, plus it's a private place where you can scrawl names in you know secret but then have it be seen soon. So yeah, it's just strange. It's strange to compare how this sort of tide of panic swept over the town, especially anybody with a similar financial situation as the Hart family. And meanwhile, you fast forward to what 66 years later when we had, you know, a school shooting, the first really big one of the times. And then that panic because of the increase in media and communication abilities is able to quickly sweep across the whole country. Yep. So you can see how technology kind of, you know, enabled that. And there's people who are also worried that this wasn't just Thurmond and Holmes, that there were other kidnappers lurking around out there, that this was a gang thing or a group of people, some sort of organized crime. Well, now I kind of want to talk about that. Mm -hmm. So you had briefly mentioned the woman that had witnessed... Her name was Mrs. Delfina Silveria. She had, she'd come forward saying that she saw both kidnappers transferring Hart from his Studebaker into another car on, on the night of the kidnapping outside of her home. But she said that she saw five men mm-hmm. put Hart into the dark sedan like a Buick. She heard one of them say, well, we got him all right. And then they left. 54 years later, somebody went back and talked to her. Her story had not changed at all. She is still to this day insisting there were five men that night. So there is definitely a possibility that maybe they did have help at some points at least. And another aspect of that is that the police, in trying to confirm or deny her story, brought two cars to her property, one of which was Brookhart Studebaker, and the other was similar to what she said she'd seen. And if I'm remembering correctly, I didn't write this one down, because there were a lot of details in that book, and I couldn't get everything. I can't just read the whole book verbatim, damn it. (laughs) Unfortunately. So... 
she pointed at the Studebaker and she said, there, that's the car I saw. That's the one. And the cop tried to put her off by being like, oh, no, that couldn't be. That's mine. <laughs> Lying to her in order to try and really double down on checking to see whether she's telling the truth. And she was adamant. Yeah. She's like, nope, that's yeah. the car I saw. Get out of here with your nonsense. Exactly. And I wouldn't be surprised, given the timing that you said, if 54 years later, it was Harry Farrell who wrote Swift Justice, who was asking her about I the car. believe it was, I believe actually. it was, yeah. Yeah, this was a hell of a book. Highly recommend it. I got for clumped at points. I did. For clumped. I got for clumped. I got emotional, so. Now, there's all this talk of lynching. People start gathering outside the courthouse where the men are being held. So the sheriff calls in a friend who runs a garage, has him bring his mechanic. Those two switch clothes with the kidnappers and act as decoys to distract people while they scoot the kidnappers out. So I love this. So Christy's like, oh, and here's the talk of lynching. And I'm over here with this big gleeful smile on my face. Like, this is my favorite part. Oh, <laughs> I love this. I don't love it. We're very different in that respect. I don't love it because even though I think our justice system is incredibly flawed, I think mob justice is even more so. I don't know. Sometimes it's hilarious. The fans here are being flamed by the newspapers. This is a local newspaper editorial the day of the captures. If mob violence could ever be justified, it would be in a case like this, and we believe the general public will agree with us. There never was a more fiendish crime committed anywhere in the United States, and we are of the belief that unless these two prisoners are kept safely away from San Jose, there is likely to be a hanging without waiting for the courts of justice. To read the confessions of both of these criminals makes one feel like he wanted to go out and be a part of that mob. If you could have been with the writer who called at the Hart home to offer our sympathy and assistance at this time of their great trial, it would have made you feel like going out and committing a lynching yourself. We're definitely seeing the media at play and how the media is influencing public opinion and actions. Like the governor's actions? The governor's. Oh, we'll get to the governor. I got a little bit before we get to him, but we'll get to the governor because there is some, somebody got a Pulitzer out of that. <laughs> so. I love it. On the way, the car carrying Thurman stops at the San Mateo Bridge, and he shows them where it all happened, as best he can say, because it's a bridge without very many individual landmarks, or it's pretty much the same all the way across. Yeah. So it's hard for them to pinpoint it exactly. They take both of them to San Francisco. That's actually where Holmes finally confesses. And in looking to prosecute, they start considering some of the applicable laws. There was the federal aspect because, like I said about the Lindbergh Act, they'd use the mail. And they'd also try to commit extortion. So there's charges coming up on the federal side, too. But statewide, they're like, okay, what state laws do we have? Oh, hey, let's look at the Little Lindbergh Act, which California had passed and changed the state law so that kidnappers for ransom would either get life in prison with no parole or the death penalty. And what do you know? It's easier to get a kidnapping conviction without a body than a murder conviction without a body. The Little Lindbergh Act had kicked in on October 25th of that year. The kidnapping occurred on November 9th. Holmes and Thurmond were actually brought back to the San Jose jail on November 22nd. 
The jail was locked and loaded with extra guns of various types, ammunition of all kinds, tear gas, and they tried to get National Guard assistance, but as you mentioned, Governor Jim Rolfe not only refused, he said he would pardon anyone who lynched Holmes and Thurmond. Yeah, uh, so California Governor Sonny Jim Rolfe said, I am not going to call out the guard to protect the kidnappers who willfully killed a fine boy. Let the law take its course. Yep. Yep. Uh, which, mm, okay. So There's so much more from him, too. I can't wait. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Pop in with any of that is necessary, because I, I got some of that, but probably not nearly as what he Oh, he was like, have. he was my favorite, I think, of, of this story. <laughs> of course. And the newspapers continue to pour kerosene on this flame, talking about a secret committee that was meeting to organize a necktie party. There's that. So the search for the body is ongoing, despite some setbacks, like, for instance, people coming down to the bay in droves because of the supposed $1,000 reward for finding Brooks' remains. No such reward existed at that point. But then A.J. Hart saw that it brought people down to search, and he issued a $500 reward. They found cement blocks with blood and blonde hair stuck to them in the vicinity of the bridge as well as wire, but for a few days, there's no sign of Brooke until they find his hat. And the clothes here are such an identifier because, of course, it's his family owns a department store. Clothes are a big part of that. They're going to recognize his clothing much more than the average family might recognize a, a member of their family's clothing. And there's also going to be labels inside of it. Some of it might be custom-made even, so it's one of a kind. They've got Navy searchlights. The Navy gives them a blimp with which to search. They have all kinds of tools offered from nearby communities, like a hydraulic pump, a recovery net, and a grappling device. So they're Batmaning the crap out of this. I love the grappling device. Right? When I saw that, I immediately went to Batman. Casey, climb back up the bridge. I don't know. I just need this. <laughs> the official search for the body went on for a week before being called off. They suspected that he had managed to get free of the weights and then died. So his body had floated away and they called off the search on November 24th. I might have cut out of the confession the fact that they put cement blocks, 22 pounds each, one on each leg. Impressive that he managed to get free of that, if so. And another reason they were calling off the search is because there was a big football game that weekend for which there would be a lot of traffic over the bridge, and so they would basically lose their command post on the bridge. So football, definitely, it was important. Very important. The very day after they call off the search, a few men were out duck hunting and found the body. It was quite a gruesome discovery. Sea life had eaten a lot of it, crabs especially, uh, and definitely from the waist up. The lower body was pretty much intact. There is a picture in Swift Justice. This is the one thing I didn't appreciate about Swift Justice, was I just all of a sudden at this point got hit with this barrage of pictures and so there's a picture of one of the duck hunters sitting next to the body, which thankfully they had covered the top of it with a blanket, but you can see the legs poking out. And he just has this smile on his face, and I am very uncomfortable with it. 
Although it's definitely the smile Amber would have if she found a dead body. You know, you, after you poked it with a stick. I would certainly poke it with a stick. You know I would. <laughs> I know you would. You're looking up a picture, aren't you? Um, yeah, I'm trying. <laughs> oh, I love how you traumatize me. Sorry. <laughs> I'm already traumatized. It's all good. Damage has been done. Because literally, okay, so in nonfiction books, a lot of the time, they will generally put the pictures sometime past the middle. And instead of having pictures at intervals or attached to the material that they're related to, they'll just have this one big section of pictures. So in a true crime book, you're just flipping past dead bodies sometimes. And it's, I got to say, it's a little rough sometimes, especially when the pictures are better than those that you found on the internet. <laughs> just letting you know. <laughs> I know. I was, I was trying to access them. I, I can only see a couple of them and not the one you're, you're talking about. I was literally going to find the place in the book, but I don't want to see it again. So <laughs> too bad. You can find it on uh, Open Library, by the way. Okay, thank you. <laughs> so, it's Swift Justice is the name of the book, if that helps. So, the duck hunters find it, and he was, again, pretty much easily identified by his clothing from Al Hartz and Sons. But, of course, they also match the dental records uh, in order to have a more scientific match. As for the autopsy, there were wounds on the back of his head, the right temple, and the top of his head. No bullets were found. There were lesions on the legs that could be bullet holes, but it was uncertain. And the autopsy determines that he was pistol whipped, not punched, not bricked. And the cause of death actually was asphyxiation due to submersion. So he eventually he ended up, he drowned, yes. But it's interesting that both Holmes and Thurmond went in opposite directions on what happened with hitting him on the head. Holmes is like, oh, I gave him a good punch and he went down. And Thurmond's like, he hit him over the head with a brick. <laughs> and yet the thing is, is actually it was probably the gun. And the more mysterious aspect of it was that they were having a really hard time locating that gun. If he hadn't been shot, that gun was still part of the murder because they hit him with it. Within an hour and a half of the body being found, word had spread around town that a necktie party was imminent. There were only two guards on duty at the jail, and people gathering by the hundreds outside, and then the thousands. Estimates went from 3,000 to 15,000 people. And there were a couple of, of sheriff's deputies there. It really wasn't, it wasn't near enough to respond to what ended up happening, so... But again, we have media joining the fray here in a way. Late that night, as things progressed, the radio practically called people to the scene and gave a play-by-play -play of what was happening. And at one movie theater, the audience was alerted that the lynching was imminent by the projectionist who put it up on the movie screen. Not like pictures, just put up, hey, lynching happening. <laughs> hey, you guys, you guys want to go to a lynching? It's happening right now. And No refunds. Yeah, no refunds. And people just... <sighs> fled right out of that theater. They just ran. One big mob. Literally mob. The crowd at the jail was too much. They overtook the police who were ordered not to use firearms. So they're given a bunch of guns and a bunch of ammunition and said, oh, hey, by the way, you can't use this. They only were able to use tear gas. The mob was yelling, lynch him, lynch him. And then other people were chanting, Brookie Hart, Brookie Hart. So there's a lot of a lot of emotion in this crowd, a lot. 
They're throwing all kinds of construction materials at the police and the guards because there was a post office being built next door. And so they used that. I feel like that's federal property. <laughs> You'd think. I mean, if, if mailing a letter makes it a federal crime, I'm pretty sure stealing building materials... To destroy another municipal property. <laughs> yeah, I feel like that would also be a pretty big crime. One would think, but, you know... They managed to break windows of the jail, and there's a gunman who shot out some more windows, but seemed to be a little bit more of a sniper. He was off in the distance. Nobody was ever able to pinpoint him or willing to pinpoint him. Or see anything. No, nothing happened here. I, I wasn't there. I was at home quilting. Quilting. By myself. The power and the phone to the jail were cut. The governor was going to travel out of state for something, but he canceled that because he needed to stay in town to make sure that the National Guard was not called up to respond to this. Sunny Jim. Sunny Jim, folks. Sunny Jim. A battering ram was made from pipe found at the construction site. Actually, sorry, two rams, each about 20 feet long. Now, there, was also, there were also rumors that Rams had been made and placed, hidden at the construction site, maybe by Santa Clara College students, who then picked them up and were ready for this. And um, you know what? What better place for some toxic masculinity than a lynching, I ask you? There is no better place. There is no better place. This is from Swift Justice. A girl in a fur coat, a blonde in her 20s, moved to the front of the mob, her eyes flashed as she beckoned the rammers on, exhorting them to a final assault. Go get him! Go get him! More cops are coming! Don't let a girl outdo us! A man screamed. With everyone along the pipe stranding, it was heaved into the doors a third time, and they gave way with a thunderous crash. She didn't outdo you. She was just standing there yelling. She was encouraging you. Cheerleading. And you're like, but no, she can't be better than us. <laughs> it's so ridiculous. The sheriff rushes to the cells because he has a question to ask. He needs to make sure that it was just Thurmond and Holmes. So he goes to Thurmond and he says, did you have any accomplices? And Thurmond's like, nope, it was me and Holmes, swear to God. So there's that. The crowd finds Holmes first, wearing only an undershirt. He was very unprepared for this, or maybe just didn't believe it could possibly happen. I think he might have had too much faith in the police. Perhaps. Perhaps. Yeah. They crowd, uh, beats him up a whole bunch, and then they go and they find Thurmond fully dressed. Thurmond was ready. He was scrambling around his cell. He was actually kind of hanging on to like the ceiling in a way. <laughs> Just leave me alone. Yeah, very much. And he ended up hitting his head. He either fell to the ground or hit his head on the toilet, one of the two, and he was out cold. And then this part is like out of a very dark comedy, again, from Swiss Justice. Swift Justice, not Swiss Justice. That involves a multi-purpose knife. So, wait a minute, boys, someone cried out. The bastard doesn't deserve it, but we ought to pray for him before we take him out. In an exceptional scene, five or six of the lynchers fell to their knees amid the bedlam and began to pray for Thomas Harold Thurman's soul. Dear father, intoned a man holding a rope. Forgive this sinner. Never mind, he's going to hell anyway. Another lynter interrupted before the prayer got any further, and a drunk in the party shouted, Amen, Brother Ben! <laughs> the prayer session broke up. 
So that is a thing. They take the men to St. James Park. Meanwhile, the undersheriff was worried because they had another man there who'd been recently convicted of a murder but gotten a light sentence. So and the, some of the crowd, once they got Thurman and Holmes, they were like, give us that guy too. And so his plan and that he enacted was he smuggled the convicted murderer out dressed as a woman. Wow. Yeah. Didn't know that. Yeah. I question where the clothes came from. You don't, hey, don't kink shame. I'm not kink shaming. I'm curious. I'm curious. Maybe I'm they were curious. confiscated from a, a lady of the night. Perhaps. Uh, perhaps the undersheriff had uh, an undergarment, I don't know, persuasion. <laughs> Maybe he really admired J. Edgar Hoover. But the hose feels so nice. <laughs> so, yeah, they sent him to the jail in San Francisco. And he basically said, I n- never want to go back to San Jose. And they briefly took him back just long enough to get his final sentence and then immediately took him off to, to prison. He was like, thank you. That's all I wanted was just not to be in San Jose. Prison? Prison is fine. As long as I'm not in San, not Jose, in San Jose with all those scary lynching people. <laughs> and also an accused embezzler escaped during all the bedlam, but only to go tell his wife that he was okay and the mob didn't get him. And once things calmed down, he went back to the jail and he showed up for his arraignment the next day. Oh, good boy. Yeah, yeah. Because his lawyer saw him along the way. That's how we have this story. His lawyer's like, wait, hey. <laughs> I think it was his lawyer. It was one of the lawyers at least who knew him. He's like, what What do you think you're doing? He's like, I'm just, they're going to kill some guys. I got to let my wife know I'm all right. I'll go back when it's clear. Yep, not going back right now. <laughs> they're busy hanging people in trees. Yep, 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 yep. So, uh, whew, that little undershirt that Holmes had on, the only thing he had on did not last long. But they hanged Thurman first. And I have to say, for this particular quote, I did listen to a particular song several times in order to try and get this right. I wasn't sure whether I was going to actually try to do the impression that is done at the end of this quote. But I think I'm going to. And I'm also sorry if it sucks. Okay. So they're hanging Thurman. A young girl with a maniacal laugh addressed the dangling form. How do you like it, you bastard? How do you like it up there? We like it. Oh, we like it, you bet. We put you there and we put you there again. The crowd took up the chant. How do you like it? How do you like it? How do you like it? A youth pulled the pants off the kidnapper, exposing his genitals. Come up and see us sometime, baby, taunted a woman in the crowd, mimicking Mae West. Oh, I listened to that song many times. I feel like I could have done that so much better. I'm disappointed in myself. I, I liked it. It was good. All right, I'm going to try one more time just to get the, the tone right. Come up and see us sometime, baby. There we go. That was the tone. Yes. Oh, man. I was just sitting in my office saying that over and over again. I'm glad Jackson wasn't home. I was, like, walking to make myself some coffee into the, walking in the living room, and I'm like, come up and see us sometime. <laughs> Oh, yeah. So then they tried to light his pubes on fire. Yeah, yeah. They were burning him with lit cigarettes, burning his feet with a torch, and a lot of the people doing this, again, I'm ashamed to be part of a group, were women. I we, mean, I, I feel like what? that's pointed out just for the sheer fact that there were women there and involved. Maybe. The, the, there were probably more men, just as a general fact, 
them being leaders in society at that time and women not being used to leading. But so I think that the fact that the women were there was pointed out as exceptional and maybe more was made of that than was actually true. Just surely from the fact that, oh my yeah. God, a woman was here and she didn't faint. Well, some women did. See, like I'm I'm partially, I guess, happy that Thurman was only semi-conscious for this. Yeah. They tried to kind of like wake him up and slap him across the face, but I don't think that has much of an effect in reality on concussions. <laughs> no, no, probably not. Yeah, it is. It's humiliating as it's terrifying. And those are two rough emotions to have to deal with all at once. And also being like, oh, hey, my life's about to end. Well, shit. It's a a small mercy that he was only semi-conscious. Did he deserve it? I don't know. We don't know because a court of law never said. Even when a court of law does say, we don't know for sure. <laughs> like I said, our justice system is in fact flawed. And it really, uh, semi-conscious or no, it was not an instant death. It took several minutes as they reprised the Brookie Hart chant so he was hearing the name of his probable victim as he was fading away and also it was interesting because Thurmond had a really clumsily tied amateur rope and Holmes was your classic noose you know the I think it's 13 times the circles go around the main rope and it was very professionally done we should say so somebody knew what they were doing, maybe did a little research, or was uh, just aware of how to do this. Or maybe they just traveled around lynching people. Maybe. That's also a possibility. I feel like that could have been a thing back then. <laughs> Probably. Then uh, they do start to hang Holmes, but they literally say, literally say, torture him first. They beat him with clubs, they scratch him, they kick him, they get out some lip matches and burn him with those. He was stripped naked except for one sock and shoe from one of my sources. Well, remember, he, he only had the undershirt to begin with. He might have had underwear, but they didn't necessarily mention it. But yeah, the, everything went except for one sock and shoe. Yep. Yeah. There are pictures. They're not They're not going up. Do not visit our, our social media if you're expecting to see those because I, uh, I have a role about putting gruesome pictures of dead bodies up. She won't even show me and I want to see them. I very much wished I had a smaller monitor at that point in time. I was like, I'm going to have to subscribe to a thing just to see these pictures. I was like, can my technology be worse, please? I'll show you on my computer after we're done. All right. The things I do to make you happy. <laughs> so, oh God, that it feels so whiplashy to go from like laughing about showing you pictures of dead people, which that's sick and demented. And I, I am pretty sick in a minute. Straight to the thing I'm about to say, and I'm trying to in, incorporate some seriousness here, but he's trying to fight the rope around his neck, so then they break his arms. This crowd is fucking vicious, I just have to say. Okay, they are well, absolutely okay. vicious. In fairness, Holmes started to pull himself up hand over hand, because he was actually pretty strong. And get the rope off of his neck. Yes, exactly. And so they took him back down, broke both of his arms, and then hung him up again. But what I'm saying is, when you're trying to kill someone extrajudicially, I don't think we can say, in fairness, he was trying to save himself. They broke his arms because, in fairness, yes, he was trying to save himself. We all would be, no matter what we'd done. I'm 
not just going to go like, oh, yeah, sure, hang me. I'm not going to try to get out of this. It's hopeless. Well, and then at the same time that all this is going on, people are taking pictures of it. There's flash bulbs going off everywhere. And then when those flash bulbs go off, it causes more panic because people don't want their faces in the pictures for pretty obvious reasons, I feel like, at this point. Yes. And so people are starting to threaten reporters and cameramen and everything. So that's also going on. So there's more violence. There were injuries throughout. There were tear gas injuries. There were impact injuries. There was blunt force. There were people just being beat up. Imagine being at the hospital, being a nurse. Yeah. And all of a sudden, all these people are piling into your emergency room in a normally pretty quiet town. You're like, what the hell is going on out there tonight? And somebody's like, oh, yeah, there's a lynching. Uh, well, okay, sure. But the whole thing is just completely batshit crazy. So Holmes is starting to die. He loses control of his bladder, and I love this. Oh, Lord. Piss down on the crowd as if giving a final fuck you to the people of San Jose. I just have to give a cheers to that writer. I love it. That was, that was very well written. And this blew my mind. Women held up their babies to see the dying man. I'm like, why are there babies here? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Don't bring babies to a lynch mob. <laughs> what the? Why should I have to tell you to not bring babies to a lynch mob? You want to be part of a lynch mob? Totally cool. I support that. No, I don't. That's bad. <laughs> but don't bring a fucking baby. Oh, my God. <laughs> I mean, this is so far beyond my standards of decency because Jackson and I literally have a saying about the time that we were in France and we saw that a band called Fucking Machine was going to be playing. So we were like, yeah, we're going to that. And we go to the square where it's being held and there's people standing there with babies. And Jackson just looks at me and he goes, don't bring a baby to fucking machine. And then we understood why. Because this band, with this name, their first song was Born to be Wild. Ah. Oh. <laughs> I know, right? I was like, wow, this is... I walked here in my brand new shoes. So I got blisters all over and there's babies. And um, can we go home? Like, let's just go back to the hotel. Yeah, so... This is beyond, like, I, I say you shouldn't bring a baby to fucking machine, and you say you shouldn't be, bring a baby to a lynching. We all have our lines, people, and they might be at different points. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Anyhow, bringing babies to any sort of concert, muffle their ears, you're going to damage their murder. hearing. Don't bring babies to murder. Or a murder, or a murder, an extrajudicial murder. Yeah, let's not bring babies to those. Holy shit, seriously. So... Yeah, as Amber said, they raised him up again. That happened actually a couple times, and then it took four to five minutes for him to die. And here is a part where you say you shouldn't bring a baby to a lynching. Maybe there's not so much of an age limit on that. Maybe you shouldn't bring a 13-year-old to a lynching. Because the Hearts had sent their youngest son, Alex Jr., to his aunt's house to protect him from whatever might happen. They were kind of unclear and trying not to listen to the lynching stuff, but they just wanted to be away from this, this atmosphere and this fear and everything. But instead of protecting him from it, his aunt listened to the radio, give a play-by-play -play all night, and then said, hey, want to go downtown and see what's up? Drove him down, they sat in the car, got a prime parking spot, rock star parking, and uh, looked at the bodies hanging from the trees. But for the rest of his life, Alex Jr. said that uh, they got what they deserved. Literally, that's his 
So no matter what, I don't approve of taking a teenager to see the lynching of the men who killed his brother. I feel like there's so many really difficult, huge, impossible to reckon with feelings all tangled up with each other. All tangled up. I felt bad seeing their bodies in pictures and I'm not related to their victim, you know? Well, can I go back Oh and, yeah, and talk about Sonny Jim? Talk about Sonny Jim. Okay, so Sonny Jim hears about the lynching. Sonny Jim has some things to say. Yeah, yes, he does. This is the best lesson that California has ever given the country. We should let the country know that we are not going to tolerate kidnapping. Had I called out the troops to beat down the crowd, terrible consequences would have resulted. Should good citizens be shot down to protect a couple of fiends for whom there are no words adequate to describe? He also said that the kidnappers had it coming. Uh, Out of 192 telegrams the governor received the next day, only 33 mentioned any negativity towards the incident. (sighs) Afterwards, he earned the nickname from the San Jose mob, Governor Lynch. Oh my God. Which was uh, pretty impressive. He had, he had been serving as governor for 19 years, longest anyone has ever held the office. Wow. And didn't actually get to see the end of his term Mm-mm. because uh, seven months later he died after a series of heart attacks on June 2nd, 1934 at the age of 64. Yeah, it was less than a year later. Yeah. Oh, he was also sued. Sorry, before he died, he was sued by Holmes's parents. Oh, yeah, that's right. They sued him for the lynching of their son, but the suit was dropped uh, when he died. It pretty much had to be. Who are you going to sue? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. The governor, I wonder about some facts of the case and the governor, because there were reinforcements called from the Oakland PD, I think the San Francisco PD, if I remember correctly, and the California Highway Patrol. The town was trying to call people in. The authorities were trying to call people in, especially the sheriff, in order to prevent something from happening. And yet, a lot of these groups would say, okay, we'll be down soon. And then they gathered and hung out in a parking lot. And they were like, oh, well, Bob's not here. And we 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 can't go without Bob. He would be super mad at us. Can't go without Bob. Can't go without Bob. So we'll just wait. And what do you know? They managed to arrive um, shortly after everything happened. And it was too late to really do anything law enforcement-wise. Funny how that works. Because or you might think I'm just speculating there. And I am as far as the governor's involvement, although I wouldn't put it past him to have made some calls and said, hey, I'm not going to stop you from going, but I am going to suggest that you go slowly. But the lynching was set for a time. Mm-hmm. 11 o'clock was lynching time. And I think everybody knew that. Yeah. And so I have another quote here from San Francisco Superior Court Judge Timothy Fitzpatrick. There was no element of doubt in the case. The men had confessed. While ordinarily we cannot condone such happenings, from a judicial standpoint, I can only say, in my own personal opinion, they did a damned good job. Mm. That's a superior court judge. Yep. 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 So the 
Oakland Police Department reinforcements arrived in time to at least keep people from cutting the genitalia from the bodies. Thanks for that. And uh, they, they, there definitely would have been souvenirs. They would probably still be floating around on eBay from time to time now. And it know. would have been in one of our books. Uh, yes, yes. So for some reason, the police department did not stop them from trying to burn Thurman's body, although they weren't super successful in that particular endeavor. He wasn't very flammable. Yeah, yeah. Pictures of the hanging bodies were published in the papers, which were promptly banned, and they were also sold as postcards. All of this is hard to really do. Like, there was an enterprising little newsboy who set up and managed to sell them at inflated prices. You know, of course there was. Of course there was. And so then they took them to the mortuary, and I have this from Swift Justice, which... Mm. Okay, brace yourself. Mm -hmm. At the Williams Mortuary, an assistant took custody of the bodies and the nooses were removed. The pitiful remains of Brooke Hart, which had arrived earlier, lay nearby. So not much past midnight on Monday, November 27th, the killers were reunited on coroner's slabs with the man they had dumped to his death in San Francisco Bay 17 days and five or six hours before. Just the idea. I, I know I have a rational part of my brain that is dominant and says he's dead. He doesn't know. But it also still feels so sad and, and disrespectful and upsetting that he still had to share a room again with them. Yeah. After all that. And that so much happened in this case that didn't necessarily need to. They didn't need to kill him. They didn't. Mm-mm. There were many successful kidnappings in the previous year that were examples of cases where you could get the money and release the victim unharmed. Or sometimes make a new friend. Make a new friend, as in your Patreon story, yes. Or Granted, a lot of these people ended up indicted and everything, but still, he has one example of a kidnapping where the subject, the Lindbergh baby, was killed and the ransom was gotten. He has... At least eight of kidnappings where the victim was released, the people got the money, ended up getting charged and convicted. So I don't understand how it's like, well, this one is the perfect crime, which, guess what, not. And these other eight, he's like, well, you know, forget them. The, the killing him immediately is what really gets me. Yeah. And I just feel like, honestly, they killed him hours before they even asked for money. Yeah, yeah, because, well, Jack Holmes had to go with his wife and, and Gertrude and her husband to a movie. So, uh, well, Thurmond ran upstate to make the ransom calls. But there's also the fact that I just think that they're lazy. They were just like, okay, so if we kidnap the guy, we got two options. We can try and keep him alive and quiet, or we can just kill him and pretend he's still alive. That one sounds easier. I don't have any extra space. Yeah, yeah, right? I'm about to be staying in a hotel room because I'm trying to cheat on my wife. Like, I got a spare room for crying out loud. And this also from Swift Justice. The murderers, quote, could have chosen no victim whose popularity and place in the community would more surely guarantee the violent retribution that followed. The ACLU kicked up some dust about the lack of action against any lynchers, and then there was a little reluctant, slow, pointless movement. So there was a teenager named Anthony Cataldi 
who claimed credit with organizing the whole lynch mob. He was like, this is all my idea. And then sold his story to the United Press. And so he basically confessed, possibly exaggerated and bragged about things he hadn't really done, maybe, and got in the papers. And he ended up being charged with violating an anti-lynching law. There was a grand jury. They decided not to bring charges. All charges were dismissed. And despite any sort of thought that maybe this all might be over, this was neither the last lynching in California. There would be another just two years later. Nor was it any sort of deterrent to kidnapping. Major kidnappings tripled within three years. So I know what everyone's wondering. What happened to the trees? Yes, yes, we are all wondering what happened to the hanging trees. So Holmes and Thurmond were lynched in two separate trees. Holmes died on the branch of an elm tree and Thurmond on a nearby mulberry tree. So people had taken pieces of both of these trees as souvenirs to mark the occasion. After the bodies were removed, some during, I'm sure, and according to the San Francisco Chronicle on December 2nd, after a special meeting of the city council heard testimony in support of leaving the tree as a monument and warning to evildoers, the council approved of cutting down the cork elm by city workers. Police were required to keep off a crowd of souvenir hunters seeking a twig or branch from the infamous gallows tree. Mm -hmm. The bark and lower branches having been hacked and stripped for mementos. So it was basically decided that the trees would not survive with the damage done, and they were both professionally removed. Who was it that did the testifying there? That they should be a monument? They heard, they heard testimony in support. Okay, all right. I wasn't sure if it was like one of the family members. And not in that article. They didn't give me anything. I don't uh, know. Yeah, some of them can be frustratingly vague. So the funeral happens. All businesses, including the department store, which hadn't yet closed on a business day during this entire ordeal, closed for Brooks' funeral the very next day. There were 67 cars in the procession, and then they took him to be put in a tomb, and poor Nettie fainted. And Jack Holmes was cremated. Ashes spread under a house somewhere. It's a weird thing. Evelyn Holmes spent about a year planning to die by suicide and, quote, take Dave and Joyce with her. Oh, damn. She went through some rough, dark times in the, the aftermath of all of this. She did manage to come out of the darkness. She ended up teaching and then got a federal job. She remarried twice, died age 93 in 1997, her son David died in 2013, and her daughter Joyce, we don't know. I couldn't find a death date for her. Could still be alive, as far as I can tell. So Harold Thurmond was buried in an unmarked grave not far from where Brooke Hart was entombed in Oak Hill Memorial Park. I don't like that. I know you can't help it. Yeah. And at least it's unmarked. And I'm still, it's still so conflicting because I'm like, I don't approve of the way he died. Like I said, I don't approve of our actual justice system sometimes. Yeah. Especially back then. 
so I certainly can't approve of a bunch of people whose emotions are inflamed and who have no rules for how they will behave. But I also don't like that he's so close to his victim. Well, I have a fun fact for you. Okay. A few months after this, in 1934, the Nazis used photographs of the lynchings as propaganda to show that lawless mobs in America were supporting the interests of the Jews because Brookhart's father was Jewish. Are you happy, lynchers? Are you happy? You helped Hitler. You helped Hitler, guys. Literally Hitler. I don't think you should be happy with yourself. You see what you, this kind of material can become? Yes, yep. it became proper fucking ganda. Nazi propaganda oh, because so lawless mobs support interests of the Jews. Wow. Wow. It's amazing how far anti-Semites will go. Like the mental gymnastics. It's They're like, I'm going to get the freaking gold here. Oh my gosh. Okay, so... Oh. That was your fun fact for today. That is my fun fact for today. My less than fun fact. Little brother Alex Hart Jr. was sent to military school. Then he came back to go to Santa Clara University. He ended up writing music for Paramount Pictures for a little while. Oh. Living in L.A. at the time. But then in 1943, his father died and he came back to take over the store at age 22, the same age Brooke was when he died. Wow. Yeah. And A.J. Hart died of a heart attack and stroke. And just a little over two weeks later, after a surgery, Nettie also passed away. So he lost his parents both in such quick succession, just 10 years after losing his big brother. The last Hart's department store closed in 1982. Brooke Hart's girlfriend, Jane Hammond, married twice. Her second husband was a knight. Oh. Sir Leonard Usher. She died in 1984. In 1936, the movie Fury came out. It starred Spencer Tracy. And it's one of several movies with a loose basis on the story. Kind of looks from the trailer. And like uh, they made a kidnapper be falsely accused and then uh, have a lynch mob come after him that he escapes and he turns out to be the hero. Uh, I don't like that. Uh, but Hollywood's going to Hollywood. Mm -hmm. Steinbeck wrote a short story inspired by the lynchings. All right, so we have some inside scoop from a good friend of the show and also my co-host on Short Story Short Podcast, which you should be listening to to hear us talk about short stories quickly. Chris Garcia, also our wonderful donor who gives us the newspapers.com subscription that we use heavily. Chris is amazing. He is awesome. So this from Chris, the only remnant of the Hart department stores is an ad painted on the back of a former warehouse, which you can see getting off of the freeway, and it's a protected San Jose landmark. So that'll be on, I'll put that on the social media. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. And then he gave me some information, and I... I did a little digging about that. So Royce Breyer was a writer for the San Francisco Chronicle. He wrote extensively about the lynching, even after having been attacked during it and threatened by the mob. And when a lynching mob is threatening you, you know what they threaten you with? Lynching? Lynching, yes. And he was also suffering the attack effects of tear gas that he'd taken during the skirmish. 
But through all this, he and several assistants kept editors updated by telephone and basically fed them the story minute by minute as it happened. He ended up getting a Pulitzer for, quote, distinguished example of a reporter's work during the year, thanks to this reporting. And that came with a $1,000 prize, which is about $20,000 today. Wow. And there's also another Pulitzer related to the lynching. That was Edmund Duffy. He got the second of his three Pulitzers for a cartoon about the lynching with the governor, your good friend Sonny Jim, pointing at two bodies hanging from a tree branch. And this is one of the ones where it's all in the title. The title is California Points with Pride. So yeah. definitely a, a pointed rebuke of them. <laughs> I'm so funny. Finally, finally. A former mayor wrote a play based on the book I quoted extensively here, Swift Justice by Harry Farrell. I'm not going to name him, but there is a rumor that after the lynching, 74 cents was found on the ground. And that former mayor who wrote that play might also be in possession of that pocket change that might have been maybe from one of the criminals. Probably the one with pants on already. I would assume, yeah. One would think. So, because otherwise, I don't want to know where he was hiding the chain, <laughs> right? Yeah, so yeah, somebody might have some cursed coins there, as I would think of them, but maybe not. It's just a local rumor about town. But this is why well, it's good to have people on the ground in the places we talk about occasionally mm -hmm. so that we can get the inside scoop there. So, many thanks to Chris Garcia for answering my. My quick Facebook messenger plea of, tell me things about this kidnapping that I might not know. Don't tell me where that change came from, though. Don't. We don't. We No, we don't want to know. We don't want to know. We're good. So, I think that's all we have on the Brookhart kidnapping. And we have a patron shout out. So, welcome to the Patreon, Deanna Lancaster. Hi, Deanna. <laughs> Hi, Deanna. Thank you. And uh, as I told you at the top of the show, you too can become a patron and have me sing your name. Sometimes badly, sometimes not. It's the, you know, 50-50. It's a crapshoot. If that. Yeah. 25 <laughs> So, yeah, you can do that. Link is in the show notes. We told you about it at the top of the show. We already mentioned the social media where you can come and see pictures of not dead bodies. None of those. Uh, because I don't want to be interrupting your, you know, breakfast Facebook scrolling with a picture of a naked hanging man. That just feels rude. Felt rude when I was willfully reading the book and came upon the pictures. It still was like, no, this is mean. You say that immediately. I'm like, I know where I could put my bagel down. <laughs> oh no, bad, 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 bad. So, so yeah, don't forget about that. And you know what? Rate, review, subscribe, sure. But honestly, I think it's better to tell a friend. You know, we're it. I noticed today, I think, if you count the, the bonus episodes we released, because we released a lot of them during quarantine, I think we're actually at 150 total. And also the interviews I've done, like a couple interviews here and there, and some extra stuff. I think we're at 150 total. I don't think we're going to be number one on Apple Podcasts via reviews unless one of us actually gets murdered or murders the other one. <laughs> I mean, like, if you insist... We could probably make something happen. I'm pretty sure this ends with me being cannibalized. I think. We all agreed we were going to end up eating you. Yeah, that's yeah. That's just how this ends, Chris. I don't think this ends well for me. So yeah. I don't think that's going to happen. And I'm fine with that. But tell a friend. Because if you like us, they'll probably like us too. Unless they hate true crime. 
because our friend Joe asked for podcast recommendations. Not true crime. He said, not true crime. <laughs> I won't listen to it. And I was like, thanks for the support, Joe. That's okay. I don't care. It's fine. I love him. You don't <laughs> even have to say that because he's not listening. No, he's not. That's exactly why I said it because he won't hear. Mm. So, so yeah, tell a friend if you enjoy us. Uh, like I mentioned, listen to Short 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 Podcast. I said the name in a way that all the syllables were right and all the letters were right, but they were not in the right order. That's Listen fine. to that. Close and enough. I, I will put a link in the show notes this week because I haven't done that for a little while. And, uh, yeah, there's also links to our Redbubble and to our Amazon wishlist where you can be a god and give us a book to read and we will talk about the associated crime. So that's also an option you can do. Or you can just send us money via PayPal. Uh, our email address, oldtimeycrimey at gmail.com can be used to do that. And you'll also get me singing a shout-out. Maybe that's a deterrent and I should stop it. You can leave me a buck on the nightstand. <laughs> you can leave us a buck on the nightstand if you don't feel like being in a long-term relationship. I forgot about that. I haven't said that in a long time. Thank you. Let us know if you want us to t have Christy stop singing. <laughs> yes. Oh, you can also let us know that. I may or may not listen. Again, it's it's 25-75 and I'm not going to tell you in which direction your odds lay. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? That's gambling, baby. So, yeah, that has been... Oh, what are we doing this week? God damn it. <laughs> I am um, getting ready to pack. Both for vacation and moving because your timing in your life is extraordinary. Like, I don't, I don't know why God hates me. Probably because I do this podcast and say the things I do. Um, <laughs> it might be. It might be. <laughs> you were, came out in full support of lynching. So just, no, kidnappers, not like the Southern kind. Yeah, no, like, sometimes I am a fan of vigilante justice. Yeah, it's the more vigilante justice and not any sort of racism-inspired lynching. I think we should yeah. qualify that. I think we should be clear. And I mean, also, like, part of me kind of enjoys any time they're lighting somebody's pubes on fire. I don't know why. I'm just like, this is, like, funny to me. Because you can't say that and not be like, ha-ha. Um, Ladies and I gentlemen... Can't. You Mrs. Know, Jeffrey Dahmer. So <laughs> I don't know if you so lit on fire. I'm just guessing. I I might have once or twice. Um, <laughs> so I think I should probably make like a therapy appointment. I think so. Yeah, I can recommend one. There might be something wrong with me. <laughs> there might be deep thoughts from Mrs. Jack. Is, is that Dahmer. not funny? Like lighting pubes on fire is not funny because it's funny to me. It's not. I don't. Find it's it. not funny. I. The, the vague general concept, okay, somewhat amusing, but the actuality where I'm picturing it in my head, nope, don't like it. So there's there's a line there between concept and reality, and the concept, I can see the humor. The reality, I struggle with. You know what? I'm going to blame, I'm going to blame Scott for this. Sure. That's what, because Scott has a joke about Pierre, the French fighter pilot. Oh, uh, yes, And that every one. time I think of somebody's crotch on fire, I go to that joke and I laugh. And I think that's that's where I made that connection. Okay. I can see that, that connection being made. I still think your neurons are a little messed up. Because when I go down, I go down in flames. <laughs> Very well done. So what are you doing this week, perhaps? Uh, I am listening to the West Cork podcast, which is a really interesting podcast about a murder in Ireland and I'm very curious to see where it's going to go. It seems like probably to Ireland some developments. Yeah, I'm also very much watching the preliminary hearings, not watching watching, I'm watching threads about and articles about the Kristen Smart uh murder preliminary hearings where they 
The podcast came out a couple years ago. It's called Your Own Backyard. If you haven't listened to it, go listen. So good. And then likely in large part because of the podcast and the attention it brought, more action happened in the case and arrests were made. And now we're watching, again, no cameras involved, so not technically, but we're paying attention to the preliminary hearings and seeing what's happening. And what's happening right now is I'm sure the defense must have some sort of actual strategy, but it seems to be throwing spaghetti at the wall. See what sticks. They were like, you know, she probably ran away and then didn't contact her beloved family for 25 years. Also, she was sighted at Taco Bell's in the area in the years following. And it's like, as, as Chris Lambert, the, the host of Your Own Backyard, said in his Instagram write-ups of the case, he said, was able to leave her family for 25 years, but wasn't able to give up Taco Bell. Yo, have you tried those Cinnabon things? I can't. I'm allergic to cinnamon. Oh, you're <laughs> so. missing out. I'm so sorry for you. So uh, they, they also tried to get the prosecutor recused because an investigator who had worked on the case and was being cross-examined was wearing a purple tie, and purple was Kristen's favorite color. Again, spaghetti just splattered everywhere. It's a marinara, like, freaking Jackson Pollock on the wall. It's amazing. It's so weird. And then the latest is that they subpoenaed Chris Lambert as a witness to try to get him kicked out of the courtroom because he was there as press. But if you're going to be testifying in a hearing, most people, unless they're like related to the victim, like Kristen Smart's family and such, are not allowed to be present to hear other testimony because it might influence yours. Mm -hmm. And so they subpoenaed him to come as a witness. Meanwhile, he started the podcast like 18, 19, 20 years after the disappearance. So how is he? He, I'm pretty sure he didn't see it. Yeah, <laughs> pretty, I'm pretty sure, sure he wasn't there, guys. Yeah, pretty sure he's not a witness, but they're really trying to use the podcast as sort of a get-out-of-jail-free card and say that the podcast is influencing all this, but the, the only reason that that might even remotely work is because it's a newer form of media because it's not like other places haven't reported on it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, yeah, anyhow. So, yeah, I'm going to be paying a lot of attention to that, and... It's it's been fascinating to to watch and to see what's happening and what the crap the defense is doing because I don't understand what they're I don't know what the thinking is but I'm not a defense lawyer so I I can only mildly criticize so yeah that's my shit this week and um, yeah that's our show for this week Amber thank you this was just, <laughs> it was just amazing it was just it was good times to be had by none I mean no but we had we had missile tits. We did. Titty and torpedoes. Titty torpedoes. Good times were had. With, Good times with were had. Yes. Balls deep that one time. And you tolerated and even approved of my attempt at a Mae West impression. That was pretty good. Yeah, that was, thank you. I appreciate that. Like I said, I worked hard on it and sounded like I maybe needed to be highly medicated for a little while one afternoon. <laughs> Come up and see us sometime, maybe. <laughs> on that note... Come up and see us sometime on our social media, and thank you for listening to our filthy words. Bye! Bye! My sources are the books Swift Justice, Murder and Vengeance in a California Town by Harry Farrell, Find a Grave, NorCalMuseum.org, and from Newspapers.com, thank you Chris Garcia, the Santa Rosa Press Democrat, San Francisco Examiner, Brooklyn Times Union, Oakland Tribune, and from California Digital Newspaper Collection, the San Jose Mercury News. My sources this week are Ranker.com by Amanda Sedlak-Havener, SF Weekly by Bob Calhoun, Mercury News by Scott Herhold, 
San Francisco Gate by Carl Nolte, uh, rarenewspapers.com from the Knickerbocker Press, and Major Smolinski, and Wikipedia. I think I used some Major Smolinski too. I neglected to mention that. Major Smolinski! You must not think very highly of somebody or, well, my voice just went 13-year-old boy. <laughs> That was interesting. My laugh on the screen is hilarious. <laughs> I can't miss it. Oh, they called him Machine Gun Kelly. They call me Machine Gun Christy. My laugh has been compared to a machine gun in an unfavorable manner in my childhood. So that's fun. <laughs> so I'm not self-conscious at all. I feel like we should name the episode Machine Gun Christy. <laughs> oh my God, that might have to happen. It might. At this point, it's a toss up between that and the beep, beep, beep.